Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is, Is Hell Forever? A debate between Chris Date and Phil Hernandez. What does the Bible teach about hell? In hell, do the damned experience eternal conscious torment, or are they annihilated? Phil Hernandez affirms the traditional view of a fiery torture chamber, whereas Chris Date defends the proposition that God will destroy people in the fire. Now, obviously, I have a bias on this subject, having examined the many biblical texts that proclaim the wicked will vanish like smoke, be cut off, be no more, be destroyed, and perish. Even so, how do we deal with the two or three difficult texts that talk of an eternal fire or an eternal punishment? Listen in and hear one of the best conditional immortality apologists present a strong case for annihilationism while ably fielding objections and questions from Fernandez and the audience. For more resources by Chris Date, check out RethinkingHell.com, a site that has a spectacular podcast that I highly recommend. It's great to see everybody tonight. We're, we're excited to have you here for our, our debate on hell. It's not a debate on whether hell is real or not, but uh, two different views on hell. So, so we're excited to have you here for this. The two views expressed tonight in the debate will be that of uh, Chris Date, who will hold an annihilationist perspective and Dr. Phil Fernandez will be arguing eternal conscious torment, so the traditional view of hell. And I'd like to introduce you to these, uh, these men before we get going. Uh, Chris hosts his own theology and apologetics podcast and contributes to two others, including the Rethinking Hell podcast. He's a software engineer by trade. Chris believes theology and apologetics are for everyone. Chris firmly believed in the traditional view of hell until about two years ago when he interviewed his guest, Edward Fudge, and he caused him to begin to rethink hell. Chris lives practically just down the road in uh, Bonnie Lake with his wife, Star, and his four, four boys, including his newest son, who was born just about uh, three weeks ago. So we're excited to have Chris with us this evening. Also this evening, we have Dr. Phil Fernandez. Dr. Fernandez is a former Marine who has honorably served his country. He is the president of the Institute of Biblical Defense, which he founded to teach Christians how to defend their faith. He is also the pastor of Trinity Bible Fellowship in Bremerton, Washington, and teaches philosophy, world religions, and apologetics for Kings West High School uh, and Columbia Evangelical Seminary and the Imago Dei Institute. Dr. Phil and his wife, Kathy, live in Bremerton. They have two grown daughters and three grandsons, and it's good to have Dr. Fernandez with us this evening as well. You need to know that these two men are friends. They've shared their opening statements with each other to help better prepare them and us as we listen to uh, the debate this evening. To give you an idea of the structure of the debate, the deba each man will have 20 minutes to share his position. After that, each man will take 10 minutes to rebut the other's position. We'll take a 10-minute break. And then they'll be allowed to question each other for 10 minutes apiece, and then uh, There'll be 10 minutes apiece for a second rebuttal. After that, we'll take another 10-minute break and then give you guys an opportunity to ask any questions that you would have of either or both men. 
And so I'll be keeping time this evening. I know a lot of you, but for those I don't know, my name is Steve Greeley, and I'm the pastor of Life Groups here at Christ Church. And on behalf of Christ Church, we are glad that you're with us uh, this, this evening for this, this debate. And before we get started, let's, uh, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for, for Chris and for Dr. Phil and for them just being willing to come out here and, and help us think better about what we believe. God, we want to know you, we want to know you well, and we want to know the, the truth of, of who you are and, and what you've created. So God, as we listen this evening, uh, God, help us to be able to discern well uh, your truth so that we can defend what we believe well. God, we love you, and we ask your, your blessing on this time. In Christ's name, amen. So first up this evening will be Chris. Alrighty. Well, good evening and welcome. My name is Chris Date, and tonight I'll be representing what has come to be known as annihilationism, more historically known as conditional immortality, or conditionalism for short, and I'll explain that terminology a little bit later. You can learn more after the debate is over about my view by going to RethinkingHell.com, and you can find our podcast in the iTunes store just by searching for Rethinking Hell. One of the guests that we've interviewed on our podcast provided me with a number of copies of his book for free to hand out to you uh, at the debate. You can pick yours up in the foyer. You can also pick the book up that Phil and I put together that has some of our arguments in this book here. It's also available for free. But if you want the definitive book on the topic, I would get Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes. I don't have any free copies of that. I apologize. Uh, one, uh, okay, so I'd like to begin by thanking my friend Dr. Fernandez for accepting my invitation to debate this topic and for his apologetics ministry particularly because what he's d doing is he's d equipping us, God's people, to defend our worldview from the criticisms of an increasingly hostile culture. The importance and the eternal value of the work that he's doing by God's grace really cannot be overstated. I'd also like to thank Pastor Greeny for moderating. I can speak from experience when I say that a debate moderator often works as hard, if not harder, than the, the debaters themselves. Uh, and so I really appreciate his help tonight. And thank you also to the staff here at Christ Church for hosting and running the debate. But most of all, I want to thank you, our audience. Listening to a formal, academic, maybe even somewhat dry debate for two or more hours uh, doesn't sound all that exciting to me, <laughs> uh, even less so when the topic of the debate is as sad and as terrifying a topic as hell. But it is a topic that, although not essential to the Christian faith, does touch upon a number of very important issues. Uh, the character of God, the clarity and consistency of Scripture, and the atoning work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I'm thankful and encouraged to see so many of you here, and I'm confident that your time will not have been wasted. Now, Dr. Fernandez and I are both conservative evangelical Christians. We agree on the essentials of the faith, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, salvation by faith through grace alone. We both believe that the Bible is without error, that it is the, our infallible source and authoritative standard of truth. One of the essentials of Christianity that we both affirm is the resurrection of all mankind, both of the saved and of the unsaved. Now, the resurrected bodies of believers are going to be transformed from bodies that were once frail, subject to pain, disease, and aging, to bodies that are incorruptible, powerful, and glorious. And theologians call this glorification, which also renders bodies immortal, capable of living forever. But what about the risen bodies of the lost, those who had died without forgiveness? Uh, this is where Dr. Fernandez and I disagree, and it's where tonight's debate proposition comes in, which is this. The punishment of hell will be annihilation, the everlasting loss of life and conscious existence. I'm going to be arguing that this statement is true, and Dr. Fernandez will be arguing that it is not. 
And at the core of our disagreement are those three little words, loss of life. Like most Christians since the third century or so, Dr. Fernandez thinks that when unbelievers rise from the dead, their bodies will be made able to live forever as well, though only to be punished with everlasting conscious separation and isolation from God. But like many or most Christians prior to the third century, I believe that when the unsaved rise from the dead, their bodies will remain every bit as mortal as they are now, and as ours now. Uh, They will instead be killed, dying a second permanent death. That's what annihilation is. The difference between Dr. Fernandez's position and mine is therefore analogous to the difference between corporal punishment on the one hand and capital punishment on the other, between an everlasting prison sentence and an irreversible execution. Now, not once tonight am I going to suggest that God is too loving or too merciful to send people to hell forever or that eternal torment in hell isn't fair. I don't even personally feel that way. Uh, Nor will I appeal to your emotions at any point tonight or to church tradition or history or to philosophy, none of those things. Instead, in support of my position tonight, the case that I'm going to present will be a comprehensive, thematic, and theological one based on three arguments that I'm calling the biblical question of immortality, the biblical nature of the atonement, and the biblical language of destruction. And while each of these three arguments is more powerful in light of the other two, each of them stands on its own as a powerful case for my position, and each is based on a very high view of Scripture, recognizing the full trustworthiness, consistency, and authority of the Bible from start to finish. Now, the first theme is what I'm calling the biblical question of immortality, and I summarize it this way. Only God is by nature immortal. Human beings are mortal by nature and by default will not live forever. Immortality is not universal. They can only receive immortality on the condition that God gives it to them as a gift through Jesus Christ. Hence, this view goes by the term conditional immortality. And only the saved will live forever. The unsaved, therefore, will not live forever. So 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, tells us that it is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who alone has immortality. It follows logically that, therefore, fallen human beings are not inherently immortal. And Scripture tells us that immortality is a gift that's given only to the saved. This is a great theme found literally from cover to cover in Scripture. In Genesis 2.17, God tells Adam that if he eats from the forbidden tree, you shall surely die. Now, the warning was, in the day that you eat of the tree, you shall surely die, or at least that's how English translations render it. And this has led some to believe that there's some spiritual sense in which Adam and Eve died on the day that they ate of the fruit. Now, even if that's true, there's only, that's only one aspect of the death that God had warned about. And we know that because in Genesis 3, 22 to 24, the Lord God said, lest the man reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden. And then he guarded the way to the tree of life from them. You see, as punishment for their sin, God banished Adam and Eve from the garden and from the tree of life so that they would not live forever. And at the opposite end of the Bible, in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, only the saved have access to that tree of life, which is symbolism communicating that only they will live forever. You see, the hope of immortality, the hope of living forever, was lost in Adam and is found only in relationship with God. Proverbs 12.28 says that in the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death, implying that any other path brings death. Romans 2.7 says that to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. So immortality has got to be sought, And it will not be given to those who do not obey the truth for whom there will instead be wrath and fury. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.10 that our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the earthly perishable mortal bodies of the saved will be made imperishable and immortal so that we can inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, with all of this in mind, consider verses you've heard a thousand times, but whose contrast between life and death you might have overlooked. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 10.28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Christians do die, of course, and so a truly final death must be what's in view. So, Dr. Fernandez's view is that the unsaved will live forever in hell, but as I summarized a few minutes ago, the answer to the biblical question of immortality is that human beings can only receive immortality on the condition that God gives it to them as a gift through Jesus Christ, and so the unsaved will not live forever. The second theme is what I'm calling the biblical nature of the atonement, and here's how I summarize it. Jesus bore the punishment of hell in the place of those who deserve it as their substitute. The punishment Jesus bore was suffering and death. Therefore, those who must instead bear their own punishment will likewise be punished with suffering and death. Now, Dr. Fernandez and I agree that Jesus suffered and that the risen lost are going to suffer as well. That's not at dispute in this debate. But another great theme of Scripture is the atoning, substitutionary, physical death of Christ. Well, what do we mean by substitutionary? We mean that Jesus was our substitute. A substitute is a person or a thing that acts or serves in the place of another. You could think of a substitute teacher who teaches in the place of a normal teacher when she's sick. Or you could think of a substitute pitcher who pitches when the normal pitcher's arm is injured. Or you could think of even a substitute ingredient in a recipe when the normal ingredient is something that you're allergic to. In these ways, Jesus was our substitute because he bore our punishment in our place so that we would not have to. Now listen to what Dr. Fernandez correctly and repeatedly identifies as the punishment that Jesus bore in our place in his book, Hijacking the Historical Jesus, which you can get out in the foyer. Quote, Jesus died in our place and took our punishment for us as a substitute sacrifice for our sins. The ultimately worthy substitute sacrifice for our sins would come and die. God is God, cannot die. Hence, in order to represent man and to be able to die as our substitute sacrifice, God the Son had to become a man. Jesus, the God-man, has paid the full price for our sins by dying on the cross. God is satisfied with Jesus' death, the ultimate price, unquote. Now, Dr. Fernandez is absolutely right. Isaiah 53, 5 is famous. He was pierced for our transgressions. Is followed in verses 8 and 9 by he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, and 8 that at the right time Christ died for the ungodly and that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Paul calls this the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, writing, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5, 15, Paul writes again of him who for their sake died and was raised. Peter likewise says in 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ also suffered once for sins being put to death in the flesh. Now to be sure, Jesus suffered as part of his atoning death, but he also died and so whereas Dr. Fernandez's view is that the unsaved will live forever in hell, I, as I summarized a few minutes ago, the biblical nature of the atonement is that the punishment Jesus bore in our place so that we won't have to was suffering and death. And so therefore, those who must bear their own punishment will likewise be punished with suffering and death. Now, the third and final theme is what I'm calling the biblical language of destruction. And here's how I summarize it. The, biblic, the Bible consistently, repeatedly, in no uncertain terms and in a variety of ways, says that as the, the fate of the unsaved will be destruction, a complete and irreversible end of life. This certainly appears to be the unanimous Old Testament witness, and I could spend a whole lot of time demonstrating this, but I'm just going to give you a sampling from the Psalms. 
The Psalms indicate that the unsaved will fade and wither like grass, be consumed, be no more, perish, vanish like smoke, be destroyed and cut off, be broken and dashed to pieces, be slain, be blotted out from the book of the living, be blown away like chaff, be like a dream forgotten when one awakens, melt like wax and perish. Now, God's judicial, punitive, destructive wrath just is not always poured out on the wicked in in this life all the time. Many of them die in peace and in luxury, and oftentimes they're not the ones who vanish out of the the sight of the righteous. Many times it's the other way around. And so I think we have really good reason to see these metaphors as principles of divine justice that will be meted out in, in the final punishment, if not in the here and now. And the New Testament just as strongly foretells the final destruction of the unsaved, and it does so in straightforward and didactic statements, historical events given as examples, analogies and metaphors, and in symbolic imagery and visions. And what's interesting is that some of these texts are typically cited as support for the traditional view of hell, when in fact there's stronger support for mine. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Philippians 3, 19 says their end is destruction. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and numerous other examples could be cited. Now, of course, traditionally the debate has centered around the meaning of the various words translated destroy, but when it comes to Matthew 10, 28, the word here translated destroy consistently means something like slay or kill in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when used in the grammatical form that it's used here. In Matthew 2.13, Herod wants to kill the baby Jesus. That's the word destroy. In Matthew uh, 12.14 and Mark 3.6, the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. Again, the word destroy. In Mark 9.22, a demon is said to throw its host into the fire to try and kill him. Again, that's the word destroy. There's no reason to believe that Jesus is using the word differently here in Matthew 10.28 than it's used in these and many other places in the Synoptic Gospels, particularly in light of his contrast between men who can kill only the body but not the soul and what it is that God can do, which is he can kill the soul too. Now, historical examples. We've got Second Peter 3, 6 and 7, which compares the future destruction of the ungodly to those who were killed in Noah's flood, saying that the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, and that the ungodly are being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Second Peter 2, 6 and Jude 7 compare the future destruction of the ungodly to the past destruction of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter specifically says that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. I can't come up with a better way of putting it than that. Jude calls the fire that destroyed those cities eternal fire. And this is really interesting because eternal fire is what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41 to 46, is the means by which eternal punishment will be meted out upon the unsaved. You see, eternal punishment is not ongoing eternity of punishing. It's, that's just not what's in view. Rather, it's the punishment of death, an eternal death from which they will never rise to life again. And it's no wonder then that the fate of the lost is here contrasted with eternal life because unlike the saved, the lost won't live forever. Matthew 13, we're, we're getting into analogies now. Matthew 13, 40 to 42, compares the future destruction of the unsaved to weeds being completely burned up in fire saying that just as the weeds in the parable are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. They will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that last verse, weeping and gnashing of teeth, has been thought by many to be support for the traditional view of hell. But as you can see, the duration of the weeping and gnashing is limited to the time that it takes to be burned up like weeds. Of course people are going to weep and gnash when they're being burned up. And what's interesting is Jesus is alluding to Malachi 4, 1 and 3, which says that the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That day, is coming shall, uh, that day that is coming shall set them ablaze, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes. 
under the soles of your feet. Now, most often misunderstood are texts which fall under the category of symbolic imagery and visions. In Mark 9:48, Jesus says that in hell their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he's quoting Isaiah 66:24, which says that it is specifically the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against God, whose worm shall not die and whose fire will not be quenched. The picture here in Isaiah 66 is, is of the corpses of God's slain enemies being eaten up by fire and maggots. You see, unquenchable fire isn't fire which never dies out. That's not what quench means. It's a fire which can't be put out. And because it can't be put out, it irresistibly consumes and devours. You see this in both Ezekiel 20, 47 to 48, and Jeremiah 17, 27, where God's fiery wrath will not be quenched, meaning that it will be unstoppable, unable to be extinguished. And because it will be unstoppable, it will devour trees and palaces. When describing fire, the word devour means to completely burn up. And this idiom of unquenchable fire is used in the same way in the New Testament in Matthew 3.12 and Luke 3.17, in which John the Baptist says that Jesus will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. If that metaphor weren't enough of chaff being burned up in fire, the word burn here in the Greek literally means to burn up, to completely consume. Now the worm which will not die is a little more difficult, but it communicates the same point as the scavenging beasts and birds in Jeremiah 7.33 and Deuteronomy 28.26. Scavengers which can't be frightened away from the corpses that they feed upon, meaning they'll completely devour them. Now I've saved for last the symbolism of the book of Revelation, which is frequently pointed to as support for the traditional view, when in fact it teaches something quite different. You need to keep in mind that as Richard Bauckham put it, quote, uh, Revelation is, quote, a highly stylized form of literature with its own conventions of symbolism and terminology, a literature of dreams and of visions never intended to depict the end in literal terms, unquote. And you also need to keep in mind, as G.K. Beale notes, that, quote, no other book of the New Testament is as permeated by the Old Testament as is Revelation. Although its author seldom quotes the Old Testament directly, allusions and echoes are found in almost every verse of the book, unquote. Keep those two points in mind as we look at these passages, the first of which is Revelation 14, 9 to 11, which sounds like it teaches eternal life in hell because it speaks of smoke rising forever from the torment of restless beast worshipers. But let's look at all of the imagery in this passage and how it's used in the Old Testament whence it, can't, whence it comes. Drinking of God's wrath appears here in the imagery, and so does fire and sulfur and smoke rising forever. Well, in Job chapter 21, verses 20 to 21, it says, Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Their months is cut off. That's an idiom for death. In the imagery of Jeremiah 25, 15 to 33, where the nations are made to drink of the cup of the wine of God's wrath, God summons a sword against them. And it says that their dead bodies won't be buried, but will instead be dung on the surface of the ground. So drinking of God's wrath is associated with being slaughtered. So too is the imagery of sulfur and fire and of rising smoke, imagery coming from Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 and 28, which deals with Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as Isaiah 34, 9 to 10, which deals with the city of Edom, in both cases in which fire and sulfur destroys cities and slays their inhabitants and then smoke rises from their remains. This imagery of smoke rising forever symbolizes death and destruction. Now in Revelation chapter 20, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are all tormented forever in a lake of fire and sulfur. There's that imagery of destruction again. And the unsaved are later thrown into it as well. But this is the same lake of fire into which death and Hades are thrown. Death and Hades aren't concrete entities. They can't be tormented at all. Death is the process of dying. Hades is the grave or the underworld, the, uh, the place of the dead. This imagery symbolizes an end to death and Hades. In fact, it symbolizes an end to or the destruction of everything thrown into it. And this is why both John and God interpret the lake of fire imagery in Revelation chapters 20 and 21 a symbolism representing the second death of human beings thrown into it. You see, the second death is not another metaphor. It's the straightforward, plain interpretation 
of the metaphors and the imagery. The unsaved are going to die a second time. And so when we look at the biblical language of destruction, we see that the Bible consistently, repeatedly, in no uncertain terms and in a variety of ways, says that as their punishment in hell, the unsaved will be destroyed, by which I mean they will be brought to a complete and irreversible end of life. Now, no doubt many issues will be discussed in the course of tonight's debate, but I want to remind you as I finish that the Bible is trustworthy, consistent, and authoritative, and we must not read our presupposed traditional view of hell into the text of Scripture. Rather, our understanding of any text which might touch on the doctrine of hell have got to be consistent first with the biblical question of immortality, which is that immortality is only given to the saved, second with the biblical nature of the atonement, which is that Jesus bore the punishment of death, and so the unsaved will bear that punishment themselves, and thirdly with the biblical language of destruction, which tells us that the lives of the unsaved will be brought to an end in their destruction. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Dr. Fernandez. Well, it's an honor to be here tonight defending the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious suffering. I wish harm on no man. I believe that the Word of God clearly teaches that Gehenna is a place where the unsaved will experience eternal conscious suffering. My opponent and friend, Chris Date, is a brilliant and articulate articulate evangelical who's attempting to convince the evangelical church to rethink hell and embrace doctrines more commonly associated with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists. Chris believes that the Bible teaches conditional immortality, basically annihilation of the unsaved. Rather than eternal conscious torment, Chris believes the unsaved will be raised on the last day and then cease to exist for all eternity. Is my thesis that the evangelical church should not be quick to reject the traditional view of eternal conscious torment. I believe that the majority of the church fathers were right to accept the doctrine of hell as eternal conscious suffering. I believe the Bible clearly teaches this. I also believe that if we evangelicals reject the traditional view, it will open up the floodgates so that other traditional views will fall as well. I will show this tonight in the annihilationism of Chris Date for he rejects other traditional Christian doctrines as well. As a growing number of evangelicals reject the traditional view of hell, I strongly encourage believers to resist this trend. Now, here are some reasons for accepting eternal conscious suffering. Number one, the church has taught for the past 2,000 years that hell is eternal conscious torment. A partial list of great Christian thinkers who have interpreted the Bible as teaching eternal conscious torment include the following... Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Cyprian, Chrysostom, Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, Athanasius, Anselm, Aquinas, Bonaventure, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, Charles Hodge, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, B.B. Warfield, Francis Piper, Louis Burkhoff, Louis Spurry Schaefer, Henry Thiessen, Walter Martin, and Francis Schaefer. Contemporary evangelical theologians can be added to the list. Millard Erickson, Wayne Grudem, Charles Ryrie, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, and Norman Geisler. Virtually all segments of traditional and contemporary Christianity have embraced this doctrine. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, mainline Protestantism, and Evangelicalism. If we decide to reject this doctrine, we must have solid scriptural evidence for annihilationism. Because the, doc because the doctrine of hell as eternal conscious torment has been the teaching of the church for the past 2,000 years, the burden of proof lies clearly with the newer breed of evangelicals who desire to embrace annihilationism 
and reject the traditional view. Reason number two, the Bible clearly teaches eternal conscious suffering. I believe the Bible unambiguously teaches the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. This can be seen in numerous passages. Although the Old Testament focuses primarily on temporal, earthly judgments, there are two Old Testament passages that I believe deal with the issue of eternal conscious torment, Isaiah 66 and Daniel 12. In Isaiah 66, 22 to 24, in this passage, Isaiah speaks of the final judgment. Using, using figurative language, Isaiah says of the unsaved, their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. The rabbi of Jesus' day, as well as Jesus himself, would later use these metaphors uh, to describe the eternal conscious torment of the unsaved. In Daniel 12, 1 and 2, Daniel, speaking about the end times, says that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Clearly, Daniel, Daniel believed that both the saved and the unsaved would be raised from the dead in the last days. He believed that the saved would be raised to eternal existence characterized by life. On the other hand, the lost would be raised to an eternal existence characterized by shame and everlasting contempt. In the New Testament, God's progressive revelation of the state of eternal judgment becomes even clearer. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaks of hell numerous times. He calls hell Gehenna, naming it after a garbage dump outside Jerusalem. He speaks of Gehenna as a place of eternal fire. He says that hell is much worse than physical death by drowning. He refers to hell as a furnace of fire and a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 8, 22, and 25, Jesus says that evildoers will be cast outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hence, hell is a place of conscious suffering. I mean, why describe it that way if that's not the case? At the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25, Jesus tells nonbelievers to depart from them. He calls them accursed ones. He sends them to the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus makes it clear that the cursed ones will go into eternal punishment, whereas his followers will go into eternal life. Therefore, Jesus describes Gehenna as a place of eternal fire, eternal punishment, darkness, separation from God, and conscious suffering. Just as the life of the believer will last forever, the punishment and suffering of the unsaved will last forever as well. In Mark 9, 42 to 48, Jesus tells us to remove from our lives anything that causes us to stumble. For it would be better to be without these stumbling blocks than to enter Gehenna, a place of unquenchable fire, a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Like many rabbis of Jesus' day, as attested to by the Talmud, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 66 to relate the concept of eternal conscious torment. In Luke 12, Jesus states that when he returns, some of the unsaved will be punished more severely than other non-believers. In Matthew 11, Jesus said that some cities would face greater judgment in the hereafter than other cities. Apparently, there are different degrees of punishment in hell. This is not consistent with the teaching that all the lost will cease to exist. For if annihilationism is true, then all the lost will receive the same degree of punishment, annihilation or extinction. Paul states that when Jesus returns, he will repay those who rejected him with eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 8 and 9. Hence, the lost will be separated 
from God for all eternity. Jude speaks of false teachers and their final destinies by using these words, for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. At Christ's return, the unsaved will hide themselves in caves and call upon the rocks to bury them due to their fear of God's wrath. Revelation 6. At that point in human history, lost mankind will know that God's coming judgment is far worse than non-existence. John tells us that those who receive the mark of the beast will drink of the wrath of God in full strength. They will be tormented with fire and brimstone. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Revelation 14, 9 to 11. This contradicts the annihilationist view, for if annihilationism is true, then the lost will have rest forever. They will cease to exist. But if the lost face eternal conscious torment, then there will be no rest for them throughout eternity. In Revelation chapter 20, we are informed that Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet will be tormented day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire and brimstone. In fact, according to this passage, everyone who is not saved will be thrown into the same lake of fire. They share the same fate and the same eternal residence as Satan and his demons. Matthew 25. The book of Revelation closes with the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven to earth. There God's people will dwell with the Lord. However, outside the city, in the lake of fire and brimstone, reside the condemned. They remain outside the new Jerusalem and are not allowed to enter the holy city. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Hence, the Bible teaches that the lost will be eternally separated from fellowship with God. They face uh, face a destiny of eternal flames. They will have no rest day and night. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the eternal flames of hell. Hence, the Bible teaches that hell is a place of eternal conscious suffering. Annihilation of the lost is not biblical. Annihilationism would never generate the scriptural metaphors used to describe hell. Reason number three, justice demands that we deserve the ultimate punishment. God is totally just, and justice demands that the punishment fit the crime. All sin is rebellion against the ultimately worthy being, God. Hence, we deserve the ultimate in punishment. Eternal conscious torment is the ultimate punishment, not the cessation of existence. In fact, Jesus said of Judas, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. In Matthew 26, clearly hell is worse than eternal non-existence. Reason number four, eternal conscious torment is a great incentive to trust in Jesus for salvation. When I first trusted in Jesus for salvation, it was because I believed that if I rejected him, I would face eternal conscious torment. If I thought annihilation was the fate of the unsaved, I probably would not have come to Christ. The real possibility of facing eternal conscious torment is one of the greatest motivations for a person to come to Jesus for salvation. Reason number five, annihilationism is based on a faulty definition of the word death. Traditionally, Christian theologians have defined death as separation or neutralization. Physical death is the separation of the body and the spirit, James 2.26, whereas spiritual death is when our spirit is separated from fellowship with God. Annihilationists have incorrectly defined death as the cessation of existence. By doing this, whenever the Bible speaks of hell as eternal death or destruction, they read into into the text their faulty definition of death. Hence, they assume what they are supposed to prove. Annihilationists also use a faulty definition of life. Eternal life does not merely mean eternal existence. 
Eternal describes the duration, and life describes the quality of that existence. Hence, eternal death does not mean eternal non-existence. Instead, it means eternal existence that lacks the qualities of life and joy. Reason number six, many annihilationists have caved in to political correctness and the new tolerance. Now, Chris has told me that he does not believe in annihilationism because he believes it makes God a kinder, gentler God. Chris has told me that he believes God would still be just if he chose to eternally torment uh, the unsaved in hell. And that's why you find Chris's argument coming from the Bible. He, uh, he doesn't hold to this new tolerance. Still, in these postmodern times, there is an overemphasis on tolerance. Numerous annihilationists have stated that they find the traditional view of hell unjust and abhorrent. We humans are experts when it comes to sin. We are not experts when it comes to justice. We should not allow our emotions or faulty views uh, of justice to determine our beliefs. Instead, we should accept what the Bible teaches about the hereafter. I'm basically just saying, if you want to agree with Chris, agree with Chris for biblical reasons. Don't let uh, emotions do it, and I think Chris is in agreement with me on that. Number seven, reason number seven. Annihilationists have aligned themselves with suspect theological systems of thought. Of thought. Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and open theists. Though this alone should not cause us to reject annihilationism, it should cause us to reflect more on the issue. Do we really believe that the Christian church has been wrong on this issue for 2,000 years? while cultic and heretical groups were right all along? If the church has been wrong on this doctrine, what other doctrines will fall? And reason number eight, the rejection of eternal conscious torment logically leads either directly or indirectly to other aberrant doctrines, such as soul sleep, physicalism, and a possible denial of the traditional understanding of the person and death of Christ. Now, I believe my opponent, Chris Date, is a very logical thinker. I truly believe that his rejection of hell as eternal conscious torment has logically led him to reject any conscious existence in between death and the future resurrection. That's called soul sleep. Chris's annihilationism has also led him to embrace physicalism, the denial of the existence of a non-material soul. And I believe that Chris's view of death as cessation of existence will logically lead to questionable ideas about the person and work of Christ. Now, first, soul sleep. Soul sleep is the view that humans cease to exist after death and before the future resurrection. But the Bible teaches that both the saved and the unsaved continue to have conscious existence after physical death and before the future resurrection. Though I'm aware of many annihilationists who do not agree with Chris, I believe that Chris's denial of the existence of a non-material soul and his denial that humans continue to have conscious existence between death and resurrection, I believe that these are the logical implications of annihilationism. I truly believe that if one denies eternal conscious torment and defines death as a cessation of, of, of existence, then soul sleep and physicalism logically follow. Yet the Bible clearly teaches that when a human dies, the soul departs and continues to have conscious existence. The soul of a believer immediately goes into God's presence. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says, prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1, Paul, Paul desires to depart, to die, and to be with Christ. 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul knew that immediately after his death, he would be in God's heavenly kingdom. In Revelation 6, there's martyrs in heaven, and they have conscious existence. Enoch and Elijah went to heaven without dying. They did not cease to exist. 
In Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus told the thief on the cross, Today, not thousands of years from now at the resurrection, today you shall be with me in paradise. Hebrews 12, 23 says, The spirits of righteous men made perfect are in heaven right now. And in Matthew 22, verses 23 to 33, refuting the, the Sadducees who didn't believe in life after death, Jesus said that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive hundreds of years after their deaths and thousands of years before the yet-to-come resurrection. Now, the Bible also teaches that the soul of each non-believer enters uh, conscious torment in Hades. The story of Lazarus the beggar and the rich man relates this truth in Luke chapter 16. The Liberty University New Testament commentary lists ten reasons why this story is not a parable. Uh, personal names, etc. But even if it is a parable, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg and even the ESV Study Bible notes state that even if it is a parable, uh, this parable still does teach uh, that the lost and the saved will experience conscious existence between death and the future uh, resurrection. Now, physicalism, that's the belief that man is only his body. There is no non-material spirit or soul. But this is not biblical for the scripture mentioned above, the scriptures mentioned above teach that man is both body and soul or spirit, as does James chapter 2, verse 26, and 3 John chapter 2. And even Matthew 10, 28 talks about body and soul. So what happened to Jesus between his death and resurrection? Now, if death means annihilation, uh, what does this do to Christ's death? If the person of Christ died, did the second person of the Trinity cease to exist while Jesus' body was in the tomb? Or maybe, uh, maybe Chris will say that only Jesus' human nature was annihilated. But traditional Christianity has taught that Jesus is one person with two natures forever. It's called the hypostatic union. Is the annihilationist saying that Jesus ceased to be human while Jesus' body was in the tomb? Or that the Trinity was reduced to abinity uh, while Jesus was in the tomb? However, if one espouses the traditional view of hell and death... There is no difficulty in the doctrine of Christ. For the one person of Christ, both human and divine, died for our sins. But in the traditional view, that does not entail the cessation of existence. So Jesus, whether in his divine nature or his human nature, did not have to cease to exist. Now, in conclusion, I beseech the evangelical church to hold fast to the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious suffering. It is my opinion that the church should reject annihilationism. It is not the view held by the church throughout the centuries. It is not biblical, and it leads to the rejection of other traditional doctrines as well. Though biblical debate between Christians is always healthy, I encourage you to reject annihilationism for the reasons I have given above. As for me and my house, we will side with the traditional church and the way she has interpreted these Bible passages for two millennia. Therefore, I encourage you to accept the doctrine of hell as eternal conscious suffering, and I, be I beseech you to reject the doctrine of annihilationism. Thank you. Dr. Phil and uh, Chris, your rebuttal. Okay, I want to start my first rebuttal by thanking my friend Dr. Fernandez for his very kind comments about me in his opening presentation. 
I do need to correct a mistake that he made before I respond to his arguments. He said that my view and annihilationism mean that the unsaved will cease to exist, but you may recall I never made that claim. I said they would rise and die, be killed, be executed, capitally punished. It is their conscious existence that will come to an end because their souls will die with their bodies. Now, Dr. Fernandez wants to say that eternal life in hell is in some sense death, but it's in bodies which were once dead and are raised alive and live forever. The difference between our views is not between existing forever and ceasing to exist. It's between living forever in hell and being deprived of life uh, forever. So with that in mind, let's dive into the eight arguments that Dr. Fernandez offered in support of eternal life in hell. Firstly, Dr. Fernandez argued that the church has taught for the past 2,000 years that hell is eternal conscious torment, but this argument is simply mistaken. As Francis Chan writes in Erasing Hell, in the first century, quote, some Jews believed that the wicked would be annihilated in hell, while others believed that the wicked would be punished forever in an ongoing state of torment, unquote. As Douglas Jacoby notes, the early church was diverse too. Quote, even such a stalwart defender of infinite torment as John Walvoord admitted that there was diversity of opinion from the beginning of the Christian era, unquote. Now, Dr. Fernandez included in his list of uh, early Christians that he thinks believed in eternal torment, Irenaeus and Athanasius, but they did not. Irenaeus said that God grants continuance and length of days forever and ever to the saved, but that the lost deprive themselves of continuance and length of days forever and ever. He was a conditionalist like me. And so too was Athanasius. He said that sin leads men back to the nothingness whence they came and that Jesus died so that his people wouldn't reap that consequence of sin. Earlier than them in history was Ignatius of Antioch who said that were God to reward us for our works, we would cease to be. And of course there's the infamous Arnobius who also taught very early on that the lost would be annihilated. Now from the most recent several centuries, the list of conditionalists like myself includes many names. I'm not going to take the time to list them here. Uh, You can find some of them in my notes in the book that you can get out in the foyer. Uh, Nevertheless, it is true that that since the third century or so, the traditional view of hell has been believed by the majority of the church. Uh, But we don't determine truth by majority vote. There were conditionalists in the first centuries of the church, and there have been conditionalists since, including highly respected evangelicals like John Stott. Secondly, Dr. Fernandez argued that the Bible teaches eternal conscious suffering, but this argument is still weaker than his first. Many of the texts he pointed to were texts that I demonstrated in my opening are better support for my view. So I'm just going to address here some of the texts that he mentioned that I didn't include in my opening. In Daniel 12.2, the word translated contempt in the phrase eternal contempt appears elsewhere only in Isaiah 66.24, where it is the corpses of the slain wicked that are contemptible to the saved. Shame and contempt refer to how people are perceived or remembered. It doesn't refer to how they feel. And note that Daniel is told only that the righteous will live forever. So the lost will rise to be judged and sentenced to death, forever remembered in shame and in contempt. Now, Dr. Fernandez thinks that annihilationism can't account for degrees of punishment, but that's again mistaken. The final destruction of the lost could be by means that vary in type, duration, and intensity of suffering, Kind of like the way that death by the electric chair differs from lethal injection and how much suffering is inflicted. And we have other answers to degrees of punishment as well. In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-8, Paul speaks of flaming fire and vengeance, language that comes from Isaiah 66, 15. And in that chapter, as we've already seen, the lost are destroyed by being slain. Eternal destruction is an appropriate way to describe annihilation. The lost will be destroyed forever. Now, Jude says black darkness has been reserved forever for the lost. Dr. Phil was right about that. But in Job 3, Job wished the day that he was born had perished and become black darkness. It's an apt analogy for being deprived of life forever. 
Now, Dr. Fernandez argued thirdly that justice demands that we deserve the ultimate punishment. This argument isn't based on scripture. It's purely philosophical speculation. But even if it's true, I believe that annihilation is ultimate punishment. I can think of no worse a punishment than missing out on eternal life. And it's interesting that our government and many others reserve capital punishment, not life in prison, as the penalty for the most heinous of crimes. As for Jesus' statement in Matthew 26 that it would have been better for had Judas not been born, well, of course it would have been. To have lived a life of sin, betrayed the Messiah into the hands of his murderers, only to deeply regret and try to undo what he had done, to commit suicide, be raised from the dead, judged and executed violently, and be remembered forever in shame and contempt, kind of like the way we remember Hitler, certainly is worse than to have never been born. Now, Dr. Fernandez argued next that eternal conscious torment is a great incentive to trust in Jesus for salvation. Yeah, maybe. But the reality is that many people reject Christianity because of the traditional view of hell. Bertrand Russell and Charles Darwin rejected Christianity in part because they found the traditional view of hell to be repugnant. Others reject Christ because eternal torment sounds to them to be laughably absurd. In his upcoming book on three views of hell, an author named Steve Gregg talks about two people he knows personally who are able to embrace Christ only when they were shown that the Bible doesn't teach eternal torment. One member of the Rethinking Hell team that I'm a part of, he left the faith for a while because of the uh, doctrine of eternal torment before becoming convinced later that the Bible teaches annihilationism. And I was recently told about a pastor in Texas whose father left the mission field and the faith 35 years ago because of the doctrine of eternal torment, and he raised his children as atheists as a result. Thank God that his son was saved anyway. So if the traditional view of hell is false, it may be a huge obstacle preventing the lost from being saved, and it may be shipwrecking the faith of some people. Either way, our understanding of hell must not be based on how we think it will be responded to. The Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts and minds, not us. Our evangelism will, be, uh, will have its greatest impact when the Spirit testifies to the truth of our message. Now, Dr. Fernandez's fifth argument was that annihilationism is based on a faulty definition of the word death, but this is not true. We do not define death as cessation of existence. We define it as the Bible does, cessation of life. It's interesting. Dr. Fernandez cited James 2.26, which says that the body without the Spirit is dead. Well, when a body dies, we know what happens to it, right? It doesn't cease to exist. It doesn't disappear. It ceases to live. But the spirit, according to this passage, does not die, and it lives on. But as I mentioned in my opening, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, that whereas men can kill only the body, God can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, Dr. Fernandez may be right when he said, as he argued next, that many annihilationists have caved in to political correctness and the new tolerance. But as he notes, I didn't. And so for now, I'm just going to simply agree with him that we have got to accept what the Bible teaches about the hereafter, whether we like it or not. Now, unfortunately, traditionalists too often employ the fallacy of guilt by association, which is what Dr. Fernandez did when he argued that annihilationists have aligned themselves with suspect theological systems of thought like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, and Open Theists. The reality is that more cultists and non-Christians believe in everlasting life in hell than than believe in my view, annihilationism. Mormons, Muslims, Oneness Pentecostals, snake wranglers, uh, the radical fringe of the churches of Christ who believe you have to be baptized in order to be saved, the Westboro Baptist Church who despicably protests at soldiers' funerals saying that God hates homosexuals. These and many others believe in eternal torment in hell, including many open theists. Now, of course, I wouldn't dare encourage you to reject the traditional view of hell because cultists, Muslims, non-Christians, and the God hates homosexuals folks believe in it. And neither should you reject in my view because Jehovah's Witnesses believe in something kind of like it. Jehovah's Witnesses also believe that there's only one God and they believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Should we reject those doctrines? Well, obviously not. 
As Dr. Fernandez said, we need to accept what the Bible teaches about the hereafter, regardless of who else believes in it. Finally, Dr. Fernandez argued that the rejection of eternal conscious torment logically leads, either directly or indirectly, to other aberrant doctrines like soul sleep physicalism and a denial of the traditional understanding of the person of Christ. But this is mistaken. I actually began to lean toward physicalism and soul sleep before I ever began to question my belief in the traditional view of hell. Many conditionalists believe in the ongoing life of the soul after death. In fact, of the conditionalists that I've interviewed on the Rethinking Hell podcast, more of them believe in the life of the soul after death than believe in my view of soul sleep or physicalism. But what of the atonement? Well, contrary to Dr. Fernandez's mischaracterization, my view is not that death equals cessation of existence. Jesus died Plain and simple. The hypostatic union, which is the union of his divine and human natures, wasn't broken. He continued to have two natures, and his human body was dead. His human nature was dead. The doctrine known as the communicatio idiomatum, which is a mouthful, explains that we can speak of the death of the one person of Christ without requiring that his divine nature died in precisely the same way that his human body died. But in reality, it is the traditional view of hell that comes dangerously close to heresy when it comes to the atonement. Traditionalists often say that the eternity of suffering which we would have faced was exhausted in the finite hours of suffering that Jesus underwent on the cross. But if that's true, why did he go on to die? After he had exhausted our penalty in his suffering, what penalty was left for him to pay with his death? You see, the traditional view devalues the death of Christ because it renders it an afterthought when it is the death of Christ which Scripture so emphasizes as the punishment that he bore in our behalf. In conditionalism, in my view, he died so that at the judgment, his people won't die. It's elegant, theologically consistent, and it elevates the glory of the substitutionary atoning death of Christ as any understanding of hell ought to do. Uh, So of the eight arguments that my friend Dr. Fernandez offered, none of them holds up under scrutiny as being support for the traditional view of everlasting life in hell. Thank you. Chris and uh, Dr. Fernandez, your rebuttal. As you can see, Chris is a uh, brilliant thinker who's done his homework. Uh, I know that he loves the Lord Jesus just as I do. Still, our differences of opinion concerning hell need to be addressed. Now, In response to Chris's first argument, his argument from the biblical question of immortality, several things should be noted. First, I do not believe that the damned have immortality. I believe they will exist forever in conscious torment, but this is not eternal life or what the Bible calls immortality. Second, eternal life is not immortality, according to the Bible. Eternal life starts the moment a person first trusts in Jesus for salvation. Immortality is when Jesus raises the bodies of believers. The perishable body puts on imperishability. Third, I do not believe the unsaved will live forever. Chris is misrepresenting the traditional position on this point. Now, there may have been some traditionalists that were a little sloppy in their terminology, but I believe the unsaved will exist forever, but that existence does not have the quality necessary for the Bible to refer to it as life. Believers receive eternal life. Non-believers suffer eternal death. Eternal speaks of the duration. It will last forever. Life or death speak of the quality or lack thereof of this eternal existence. Hence, I would not say the damned live forever. The traditionalist believes that God only gives immortality to believers. The lost will be raised to suffer eternal conscious torment, but the Bible does not call this immortality. It calls it eternal contempt. 
The Bible teaches that the continuing existence of human souls is dependent on God. Human souls are not eternal in their own power. When speaking of humans, the Bible teaches that only believers' bodies will put on immortality at Jesus' return, 1 Corinthians 15. Believers have eternal life from the moment they first believe, John 3.16 and other passages. But biblically speaking, immortality only speaks of the believer's resurrected, glorified bodies. Non-believers will be raised, but not to life. Their bodies will be prepared for God's eternal punishment. The traditionalist believes God chose to create all humans with endless existence. But God does not call the endless existence of the lost life. He calls it eternal death, eternal contempt, and eternal punishment. God's word speaks of hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, many lashes, eternal torment, no rest day and night, and eternal separation from God. Annihilationists confuse mere human conscious existence with life, but the two words, existence and life, are not synonymous, and conscious existence and life are not synonymous. The church for over a millennium, over I would say two millennium, has never defined death as the cessation of conscious existence. The church has defined death as separation. Physical death, the body is separated from the soul. Spiritual death, the soul is separated from God. The second death, eternal spiritual separation from God. Uh, it doesn't define death as annihilation. Chris's second argument deals with the nature of the atonement. Chris believes that for Jesus to take our punishment for us, he had to die in such a way uh, that he then had no conscious existence. But this is not the case. The traditionalist defines death as separation, not annihilation or extinction. Hence, Jesus died for us in two ways. First, he died spiritually by being temporarily separated from the Father's fellowship. He was forsaken by the Father. Second, he died physically for us in that his soul, spirit, departed from his physical body. The infinite eternal Son was temporarily punished by the Father in our place so that we could be spared eternal punishment. Because of the worth of the Son, temporary suffering and death could atone for our deserved eternal suffering. Now, in his third argument for annihilationism, Chris lists an impressive number of biblical passages which teach that the loss will be destroyed. But he assumes that words like perish, death, and destruction must mean annihilation. However, this is not the case. Adam and Eve died the moment they sinned, spiritual death, yet they still existed. This is what the Bible calls spiritual death in Ephesians chapter 2. Adam and Eve immediately experienced shame, guilt, pain, and suffering. Being spiritually dead, they would also face future physical death, Genesis 5. Jesus describes Gehenna as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, eternal punishment, and many lashes. John describes the lake of fire as a place of fire and brimstone, no rest day or night, and a place of torment day and night forever and ever. Paul describes hell as eternal separation from God. Hence, God's word explains what eternal death, destruction, and perishing mean. Eternal conscious suffering. Death means separation and neutralization, the separation of the body and the soul, uh, the separation from God. The Greek word is uh, thanatos. W.E. Vine uh, says of the Greek word for destroy, apolumi, the idea is not extinction, but ruin, loss, not of being, but of well-being. In fact, the Greek word for destroy, apolumi, is translated as lost, 
referring to a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son in Luke chapter 15. Destroy often does not mean annihilate. We must allow the Bible to tell us whether the flames of hell annihilate the unsaved or torment them. And the Bible says the flames of hell torment the unslaved. Even though the biblical imagery of hell speaks of weeds being burned in fire, Jesus adds, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hence, being burned with fire points to conscious suffering, not annihilation. Now, Chris tries to lessen the impact of Revelation's passages concerning the lake of fire by pointing to the heavy symbolism of the book of Revelation in an attempt to remove the sting of passages that teach the lost will have no rest day or night and that they will be tormented. He rejects the literal existence of the Antichrist and false prophet when dealing with a passage that says they, as well as Satan, will be tormented day and night forever and ever in Revelation 20. Though the book of Revelation is filled with metaphorical language, I believe the unbiased reader will admit that it teaches that the lake of fire is a place of eternal conscious torment, not a place where the wicked are annihilated. In fact, in the last chapter of Revelation, after the new heaven and new earth have been established, the lost are still mentioned as existing outside the walls of the holy city. Revelation 22:15. Even G.K. Beale, who is quoted by Chris Date as an authority on interpreting Revelation, believes that Revelation teaches eternal conscious torment. Now, when Revelation says that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, it merely means that the wicked are raised from their graves, i.e. death, and their souls are released from Hades, only to be condemned by Christ and thrown into the lake of fire. The fact that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire in no way means it cannot be a place of eternal torment. Chris's conclusion just does not follow. In regards to the history of the doctrine of eternal conscious torment, the great 19th century scholar of ancient Judaism, Alfred Edersheim, made it clear that the two leading rabbinical schools of Jesus' day, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, both taught eternal conscious torment and a conscious intermediate state. It seems that Jesus had no dispute with these views when he spoke about hell and when he told the story of Lazarus the beggar and the rich man in Hades. Uh, as far as the first few centuries of the church are, are concerned, I will concede the point that the early church was at, at least unclear on the issue of hell. Most of the time they just quoted scripture verbatim or just used scriptural phrases verbatim. Though I disagree with Chris concerning the views of Irenaeus and, and Ignatius and, and Athanasius, I would add to that, I do agree that the issue of hell was not a completely settled issue until about the 4th century A.D. Still, Christian scholar William Crockett believes that during the time of the early apostolic fathers, Christians believed hell would be a place of eternal conscious torment, uh, eternal conscious punishment. Crockett also quotes from Ignatius and Irenaeus, arguing that they believed in eternal conscious torment. I totally disagree with Chris's claim that my biblical case for eternal conscious suffering is weak. Most of the great thinkers throughout church history have agreed with my interpretation of these passages. I will let the passages speak for themselves. Each person in attendance tonight can decide for themselves whether the passages I have quoted teach eternal conscious torment or annihilation. As far as I'm concerned, and most evangelical commentators agree with me, the passages I alluded to in my opening statement clearly teach eternal conscious torment. Now, the Bible teaches there's going to be different degrees of punishment in hell. That clearly favors the traditional position. 
my nice next door neighbor, if he doesn't accept Christ, he's, he's going to be punished not as severely as Adolf Hitler. That fits with traditionalism. Now, I didn't, when I said, talk about the Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh day Adventists, and open theists, my, my main point is this do we really believe that the church has gotten it wrong for uh, 2,000 years, whereas uh, these cults got it right the last 150? So we'll pause now. We'll take about an eight-minute break. We'll meet back at uh, what time? Seven forty. Okay, seven forty. And then these guys will question each other. It should be thought-provoking and fascinating. So we'll uh, look forward to seeing you back in about eight minutes. Questions of each other. Uh, Chris will have the first 10 minutes to ask questions of Dr. Phil. Okay. Uh, Cross-examination is my worst part of debates, so this is where I think Dr. Fernandez will shine. Um, I want to start with questions about immortality. Uh, You cited James 2.26 in your opening presentation, which says that separated from the spirit, the body is dead. So what is the body when it isn't separated from the spirit? What is the body when it's not separate? When it's when it's animated by the spirit, the body is is uh, alive okay. in the in that context. Great. Okay. And you agree that the bodies of all human beings will one day be reunited with their spirits, correct? Um, I'm not sure. They'll be reunited with their souls. Well, that's what I mean. The, yeah. Whatever James two twenty six is talking about. Um. Yeah. Kind of in a roundabout way. I just. Sometimes I use spirit and soul interchangeably because I think the Bible does as well. Okay. So your response to my argument from the biblical question of immortality was that I misrepresented the traditional view by saying that in it, the risen lost live forever. But if a body separated from the spirit is dead, then isn't a resurrected body reunited with the spirit alive? And if it remains that way forever, doesn't it live forever? Um, I don't think, I don't think necessarily so, no, because I, I, I'm going strictly by what the Bible says and when the when the soul of the non-believer is reunited with the non-believer's body, um, the Bible refers to that as uh, eternal death. It doesn't refer to it as as life. Doesn't nowhere that I know of that it uses the term life. So how does the Bible differentiate between a between a dead body that's dead and a dead body that's risen? A dead body that is dead and a dead body that is yeah. risen. Right, I mean, okay, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how, do you, how does the Bible distinguish between a body that is not united with the Spirit and a body that is? Um, I, I just think the Bible talks about believers um, being raised to eternal life and non-believers' bodies being raised um, suited for eternal conscious torment, eternal death, eternal punishment. Uh, in your opening presentation, you said that John Wesley, Charles Spurgeon, Wayne Grudem, and John MacArthur all share your view of hell. Is that right? Yeah, I, I believe they do. Okay. John Wesley said that after the resurrection, quote, neither the righteous nor the wicked were to die anymore, unquote. Spurgeon said that the lost will, quote, live forever in torment, unquote. Grudem, in his systematic theology, said that the lost will, quote, live forever in hell, unquote. And John MacArthur said, quote, every human being ever born lives forever, unquote. Do you think that uh, these traditionalists were misrepresenting your view? Yeah, I noticed that in my first year, my first year theology course at Liberty University, that my my professors were using what I perceived to be sloppy terminology. Okay. And I I saw even back then that, this was back in the mid-1980s, that 
if they were consistent with that terminology, they should probably end up in your camp. And I didn't think we should be in your camp, and they didn't, they weren't in your camp, so I just thought that their terminology was a bit sloppy. And I get kind of embarrassed to say that because these guys are usually better thinkers than I am. But uh, well, do you, I'm, I'm just curious. Do you think that you know? Again, James two twenty six says that the body separate from the spirit is dead. Which yeah, it's I would physical think, death. Yeah. Right, so wouldn't I mean physically alive? Would it be fair to say that the risen lost are physically alive? No, because uh, I, I think what he's talking about is he's just saying, look. Just as when, uh, when, when somebody physically dies, the spirit leaves their body, so also faith without works is dead. He's not even addressing the whole issue of the hereafter there. Okay. Um, you cited Isaiah 66, 24 in mm-hmm. your opening presentation as support for your view. Is it, uh, is it, what, what, what kind of bodies are in view in that passage? There, uh, some translations read dead bodies, some read corpses. Okay. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to the issue of the atonement. Would you agree that the concept of penal substitution means that Christ bore the punishment we deserve in our stead so that we don't have to? Yeah, yeah, he took our punishment for us, yeah. Okay. And since the lost don't accept his free gift, from an Armenian perspective, uh, then they must bear their own punishment, right? Yes. Now, in your rebuttal, you said that one of the senses in which Jesus died for us is that his body died. It became a corpse. But when the lost rise to be judged, they won't die in that sense, right? When, okay, repeat that again. When yeah. the lost... when, G- when Jesus died, he didn't only die a spiritual death, as you, as you yeah. noted in your rebuttal. He also died a physical one. His body became a corpse. Well, yeah, but I would view it as his, his spirit separated from his body. But like his body... He's... Okay, so his body and his spirit were separated. Yeah. And his body became a corpse. Yeah. But that won't happen to the risen lost, right? Was that, that won't happen to the risen lost. No, I agree. No, that won't. Okay. So if the risen lost won't die in that sense, if their punishment will not be that kind of death, then what punishment did Jesus bear in our stead as our substitute so that we won't have to? Well, I I think there's both a a sense of spiritual death where he was forsaken by the Father and and then a physical death and that he physically died for us. And I think the worth of his temporary physical death um, since he is the eternal, infinitely worthy, ultimately worthy Son of God, I think that's worthy enough, to, ultimately worthy, and able to cover um, an eternity of separation from God. Right, but his physical death isn't something that the lost are going to experience when they die, right? His physical death. Oh, no, no, no uh, we all do experience physical death. I don't, I don't believe we would have experienced physical death in Genesis chapter 5 had it not been for the fall in Genesis 3. Right, but he couldn't so, have experienced the first death in our place because we die too, right? What's that? Um, yeah, but he ends up... Uh, I, 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 yeah, I, I really don't see, I don't see your, your, your point here, um, but I, I think that death was totally outside of, of God's plan, both physical death and spiritual death. I believe we, all mankind would have lived forever in fellowship with God had we not fallen. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you, and I cited that in my opening statement. Yeah. I, I guess the question I was trying to get at was when the idea of a substitute is somebody who bears something in the place of another. Yeah. And if Jesus bore our punishment in his physical death, then it would seem to follow that the risen lost would die in that sense since he didn't bear that punishment for them, or, or since they reject that free gift. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see that. I, I just see that the fact that he... Uh, physically died, and that's what we celebrate at communion, is physical death, uh, but I also see a spiritual death just in the, in the sense of the Father uh, turning from him where he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think his, his physical death and spiritual death is ultimately, of this ultimately worthy 
Son of God is, is enough to atone for mankind's sins. Okay. So let's move on to my third argument, which was the biblical language of destruction. You cited uh, W.E. Vine as support for the claim that the Greek word apollomy in Matthew 10.28 primarily means ruin rather than ex- ex- extinction. Now, I, don't, you know, I, don't, you know, I know you don't have a Bible in front of you, but I'm guessing you could probably answer these questions just off the top of your head. Uh, in Matthew 2.13, the word is used in the same way that it's used in Matthew 10.28, where an angel tells Joseph to flee Egypt because Herod is trying to apollomy, yeah. trying to destroy the baby Jesus. Yeah. Was Herod trying to ruin the baby? No, I think, I think Herod was trying to kill him, but I think in ancient times, even outside of Jewish circles, whether Egyptian, Greek culture, um, we didn't view physical death as annihilation. Um, so killing someone would mean that eventually they'd go into the hereafter. Okay. So I, I, I really don't see the point that annihilationists make on that. Well, but what was Herod trying to do? Was he trying to ruin the baby or kill him? Oh, he was trying to physically kill him. Okay. I just don't uh, define killing and death and destruction the same way you do. Well, I don't think that I define them the way you think I do either, uh, but I guess the question I'm getting at is when, when, when the word apollomy is used here to describe what Herod wants to do to the baby, it means kill him, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I'm assuming you would say the same thing about places where the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes all want to destroy Jesus. They want to kill him, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and when the word is used in Luke 17, 27 to say that Noah's flood destroyed everybody, they would probably agree that they were killed. Right? Yeah. The flood killed everybody except for... Okay. Second uh, Peter 2.6 says, quote, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Jude also likens the final punishment of the lost to the death of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire. So the question I have is, how was the swift, fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in which they physically died by fire, how is that anything like the traditional view of hell? Um, that God would pour his wrath on mankind, flames would be involved, whether metaphorically or literally, and, and that it would be judgment. Um, that's the, the problem with an analogy. Analogy means two things are similar, not identical. And so what the biblical authors are pointing to is temporal examples of God's judgment as uh, analogous or as examples of God's eternal judgment. Do you believe that the person represented by the beast of Revelation will have seven heads and ten horns and look like a lion, a leopard with the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion? No, but I believe the the beast of Revelation 13 is symbolic not only of the end-time global government, but also of the man who heads it and receives the mortal head wound. Right, but you don't think that he'll have seven heads and ten horns and look like a leopard and a bear? No, I won't. Do you believe that the person represented by the second beast, the false prophet, will have two horns like a lamb? No. Do you expect to see, or do you expect future peoples to see, four apocalyptic horses and their riders, including Death and Hades, riding a pale green horse? No, I don't. Do you expect to see, or future peoples to see, Death and Hades, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, thrown into a lake of fire and eternally tormented there? Uh, well, repeat that one again. Do you, yeah. do you expect to see, or do you expect future people to see, Death and Hades, the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, to be actually thrown into a lake of fire and tormented forever there? Um, not the not that horseman, but I do think that death and Hades, as the way I understand it from Revelation 20, that that death, the graves will be emptied, Hades will be emptied, and um, and they will be uh, in the eternal flames of hell. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And now, uh, Dr. Fernandez, your questions. Okay. And I want to tell you, you know, we're talking a lot about torment and stuff like that, but that's what I 
felt like just being questioned by you. Very, very gracious, and I appreciate that. You remind me of, I used to be, did 10 years in law enforcement, and, um, and there's some defense attorneys. I was having flashbacks. And, and um, so, um, okay, uh, uh, do you believe in, in soul sleep? Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, do you believe in the existence of a non-material soul that continues to exist apart from the body after death? No. Okay. How do you interpret the story of, of Lazarus the beggar and the rich man? Do you think it accurately depicts life between death and resurrection? The answer to your second question is no, I don't. The answer to your first question, how do I interpret it, is that uh, I think that Jesus is using a, uh, what was a commonly known folk tale at his, in his day that we know of in which, um, in which the roles were reversed. In this common folk tale of that day, the rich man experiences bliss in the, in the afterlife, and it's the poor man who goes to hell as evidence, or Hades, as evidenced by the fact that he, uh, had, um, he was poor and he was destitute. Um, and what Jesus is doing, in my view, but not all conditionalists' view, uh, what Jesus is doing is he's turning that common folktale on its head and saying, no, it's actually the opposite. Rich people are the ones who oftentimes aren't in God's favor because they're prideful and arrogant and so forth. Okay, so you interpret it as a, as a folktale. Uh-huh. Um, okay, uh, Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5 eight, prefer rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. What do you think that means? Which, which passage are you quoting? Uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 eight, right. prefer rather so, to be absent from the body and home with the Lord. Right. So in the very beginning of that chapter, Paul contrasts two homes. He contrasts a temporary dwelling, a tent he calls it, and our eternal dwelling. And what he's doing is he's using very similar language when he talks about putting on immortality. He's using the very same language from 1 Corinthians 15, which is all about the resurrection. So what I think that he's doing when he's talking about being apart from the body is he's he's talking about being apart from this body, this mortal coil, so to speak, uh, when it's clothed over by the resurrection body, which will be glorious and powerful. But you don't see it, though, that when we're separated from this physical body, we'll be with Christ. Uh, no, because I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think okay. he's being separate, uh, being apart from this body because we'll be in our resurrection body. And uh, but what about Philippians one twenty three, where Paul desires to depart? He desires to die and mm-hmm. be with Christ. Right. So you got to understand that from the perspective of somebody who holds to soul sleeper physicalism. And again, I want to reiterate: there's a lot of time being spent on this line of questioning when this is not really germane to this debate. Um, somebody uh, in, in, the, in the perspective of somebody who's a soul sleeper or a physicalist, when somebody dies, they're no longer conscious. And an instant later, from their perspective, they rise at the judgment. Okay? It's kind of like going to sleep and waking up. So from, if I'm right, then from Paul's perspective, he was going to die and immediately be with Christ at the resurrection. That's how I interpret that passage. And, and, and is that the way you interpret, like Luke 23, 43, where Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me? Yes, that's how I interpret that passage. I don't so, think he was so, literally... So it wasn't he, literally today. No, I think he was speaking pastorally. I think he was saying, uh, from, from the thief's perspective, today you're going to be with me in perspective, because from the thief's perspective, even, if I'm right, he would be. Even though Jesus wasn't going to be... Yeah, that's right. There now, today, just be, Jesus was going to be, you know, Jesus, that today Jesus was going to be in the, the Father's right hand. Uh, from your perspective, yes, he would be. Mm-hmm. But where, where, where do you have Jesus? In the, in the tomb. But he's, he's, he's divine and he, and he has a human nature. Right. He, the body in the tomb, that's the only place Jesus was going to be during those three days? Well, the Bible never describes the divine 
uh, the divine nature of Christ as a person that's next to the Father's right hand or something like that. The closest thing I have, I think, is in uh, John where it says, where Jesus says, glorify me with the glory I had uh, with you before time began, that kind of a thing. Um, when the Bible talks about Christ being at, at God's right hand, it's always after the ascension. It's never before then. So no, well, I, don't, I don't share your view of that. Well, but, but so you be... You're saying that the only place Jesus, when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in Paris, the only place Jesus was going to be uh, that day was the rot, the rotting corpse in the tomb, nowhere else? Well, no, I don't think he rotted because... Uh, uh, well, yeah, yeah, I, I don't either. <laughs> okay. Thank you for catching that too, saving me from heresy. But um, um, but you, you believe the only place he was going to be was that body in the tomb. Yeah, I, I think that when God became a man... I think he. Uh, I think that in there's, there are ways in which he uh, he he truly became human. And if, as my view contends, a human being is unconscious when they're dead, then I think that the divine person of the Son of God, the divine person, the Son of God, was unconscious while he was dead. Yeah. So while the divine Son of God was dead, was he omnipresent? Well, the the divine nature is not in time. The divine nature is timeless and it's eternal. So it's, you can't speak classically anyway. Class, in, in classic theology, you can't speak of God uh, separately from his eternal timeless nature. And so when the, when the person of Christ was dead in the tomb as a human being, he was unconscious in my view. Again, this is not germane to the topic of hell. Um, he, was not, uh, he was not conscious, but the eternal son was unaffected by that because the eternal son exists outside of time. So just by becoming a man, are you saying... God the, God the Son didn't lose any of his attributes. No, so I, I mean, think, I so he had to be in more places than just the, the Well, tomb. the divine nature, I think, is everywhere all at once, yes. But not in the same way. We don't speak of God's being everywhere in the same way that we talk about you being in that chair and me being in this chair. Yeah, yeah, I know that, but I'm just trying to... i just really puzzled by that. When, well, uh, it puzzles me too. <laughs> it's, uh, a, it's a difficult issue. What about when Jesus is talking to the Sadducees who didn't believe in, in life after death? Matthew 22, 23 to 33, they try to stump him on marriage and the resurrection. And Jesus said that God is not the God of the dead. God said, I am, the, I am present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Right. Now, he's trying to refute the Pharisees. So it seems that Jesus is saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were alive hundreds of years after their deaths, yet thousands of years before the yet to come in, in fact, that's not the case, and in fact, that destroys, in the annihilationist sense, uh, it destroys Jesus' argument, because what Jesus is doing is he's answering a question about the resurrection. Jesus is, answer, Jesus is saying uh, that the Sadducees, the Sadducees deny the resurrection, and Jesus is saying the fact that there's a resurrection is why God can say that God is the God of the living and not of the dead. But if Jesus is saying that God is the God of the living now, those who are dead in their graves then he's not answering the question from resurrection and his argument fails. It's only an so argument. So don't, you don't see the fact that he's using present tense as him saying that they were alive right then and there? No, I mean, we use present tense all the time in, in ways that I don't think are to be taken literally. It seems to me that I, I think the whole argument would rest on that. Okay, do you believe Jesus will literally reign on earth for a thousand years? No, I don't. Okay, do you believe in a literal antichrist and false prophet? Uh, that's a... Th th that's a sloppy way of putting it. I would, I would, what I would say is that the symbol that is the beast and the false prophet represent primarily institutions and uh, that the beast secondarily represents a man. Okay. And, and so now, well, you accept what Jesus says. So what do, you, what do you think Jesus means by weeping and gnashing of teeth? 
Well, biblically, weeping is, uh, is not, weeping and gnashing is not pain. Weeping is sorrow and regret and, uh, you know, misery. And uh, gnashing is anger. So, it's, first of all, it has nothing to do with pain. It has to do with regret and anger. But secondly, we've already, we already, we both agree that the risen lost are going to suffer. If somebody's going to be thrown into a, 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 a furnace of fire and burned up, they're probably going to weep and gnash. But so nowhere be, does weeping and gnashing, nowhere in the Bible does it say that the weeping and gnashing will go on forever. So, so temporary weeping and gnashing, why would Jesus describe hell as weeping and gnashing if that's only a little temporary slice and then non-existence goes on for eternity? Because I think that to be consumed by the holy fire of God, which is what the book of Hebrews says is going to happen, is, a, is both a painful thing and something that results in death. But what's the big deal after you cease to exist? I think that life is an intrinsically valuable thing. That's why I don't, for example, support euthanasia. I think life is intrinsically valuable. And so to lose out on something intrinsically valuable for all of eternity is a terrifying thought. Okay, so uh, explain what, what you think the Bible means by different degrees of punishment in hell. It, never, it actually never speaks of that. What it says is that it will be worse for some than for others on the day of judgment. Um, now, I happen to think that that doesn't talk about a difference in terms of suffering. Um, there are many conditionalists who do. Um, the electric chair, for example, inflicts a lot more suffering than does lethal injection. I happen to think that it talks about the degree of shame that people will be remembered in, uh, uh, that they'll be remembered in forever. We remember, for example, Hitler with a great degree of contempt and shame, way more than we remember, say, Mother Teresa. I actually don't know if she's passed away yet, but you get my point. Yeah. Do you think that even matters, though? If, if I mean, if I don't cease, to, if I cease to exist, would I even care? What I think people that the, think if, about me. The, the biblical the biblical authors seem to care a lot. The samurai who would ki- who would commit harikari in order to uh, not have their legacy be one of shame and contempt. They seem to care about it, yeah. Okay, I just want to thank you for, for uh, your graciousness in the in no, this thank period. thank you. All right, now, Chris, your second rebuttal. Let me move this back up. <clears throat> By the way, I felt very grilled as well. <laughs> Even with the spotlights up there. I'm glad I'm not sweating. I'd like to begin this, my second rebuttal, by thanking my friend Dr. Fernandez again for his kind words about me. Uh, in, his first, in his first rebuttal, he attempted to respond to the case for conditionalism that I delivered in my opening, but his response just does not rise to the challenge. The first of my arguments was what I called the biblical question of immortality, and Dr. Fernandez responded by claiming that I misrepresented the traditional view by saying that it holds that the lost will rise from the dead with bodies made immortal, capable of living forever. Dr. Fernandez said the traditionalist believes that God only gives immortality to believers, but this just isn't true. In the second century, traditionalist Tatian wrote that when humans rise from the dead, they will either receive immortality with enjoyment or immortality with pain. Some 1,500 years later, the great John Gill wrote that the lost shall rise to life to an immortal life so as to never die anymore. And the Belgic Confession, one of the great Reformed Confessions, says that the evil ones shall be made immortal. Dr. Fernandez also said that he doesn't believe that the unsaved will live forever, but this again just is not true. In his list of historical figures who believed his view of hell, he included John Wesley, who said that after the resurrection, neither the righteous nor the wicked were to die anymore. He included Charles Spurgeon, who said that the lost will live forever in torment. He included Wayne Grudem, who said that the lost will live forever in hell. And he included John MacArthur, who said every human being ever born lives forever. And there are a lot more that I could cite. Clearly, I'm not misrepresenting the traditional view. Dr. Fernandez says his view is not one in which the risen lost are immortal and live forever in hell, but the words of traditionalists throughout church history demonstrate otherwise. 
One can call eternal life in hell death if one wishes. But when a formerly dead body comes out of the ground alive from, and never dies again, eternal life is what it is. Contrast that with what Jesus said in John chapter 6, 49 and 50. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus isn't suddenly changing the meaning of died from one verse to the next. The Israelites ate manna in the wilderness but eventually died. But those who believe in Jesus Christ will not die after they've risen from the dead uh, at the judgment. But the lost will die in that ordinary sense of the word. My second argument was what I called the biblical nature of the atonement. Dr. Fernandez responded by misrepresenting my argument. I never said that in order for Jesus to take our punishment for us, he had to lose conscious existence. What I said was that the punishment he bore in our place was death. In the ordinary sense of that word, his body died. And so therefore, those who must instead bear their own punishment, either because you're a Calvinist like me and you think that Jesus died for only the elect, or because you're an Arminian and think that only those who receive Christ's gift uh, will not bear that punishment, either way, the lost are going to have to be punished with death. But as we've seen, Dr. Fernandez and the traditional view deny that the risen lost will die. And so in that view, Christ suffered pain in our place, but not death. In fact, Dr. Fernandez said exactly that in his rebuttal. Quote, temporary suffering could atone for our deserved eternal suffering, unquote. But then why did he go on to die? After Jesus had exhausted what we deserved in his suffering, what penalty was, them, was left for him to pay with his death? In the traditional view, Jesus suffered pain in our place, but not death. Not really. But, uh, when it is the death of Christ, which Scripture so emphasizes as the punishment that uh, he bore on our behalf. Now, it's worth noting that like most traditionalists, when Dr. Fernandez is not defending the traditional view of hell, his description of Jesus' substitutionary death is spot on. If you remember what I read you in my opening statement from hijacking the historical Jesus, uh, Dr. Fernandez said that Jesus died in our place and that God is satisfied with Jesus' death, what, what Dr. Fernandez called the ultimate price. And he's absolutely right. But then when forced to explain how the atonement is consistent with the traditional view of hell, he says again, temporary suffering could atone for our deserved eternal suffering. Now fortunately, as a conditionalist, I can speak about the atonement and hell with consistency. Jesus died on our behalf so that at the judgment we won't die. But those who must bear their own punishment themselves will die. Plain and simple, elegant and consistent. Now I called my third argument the biblical language of destruction. And as you'll recall, my argument was not that a number of texts use the words perish, death, and destruction. But that's pretty much the sum total of Dr. Fernandez's response, that these words don't mean to cease to exist, which wasn't what I believed to begin with. My argument was much more comprehensive than that. And, and we're going to come back to it in a, in, a, in a moment, but let's talk about words. Remember that I had pointed you to Matthew 10:28, in which Jesus says to fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Dr. Fernandez responded by citing, citing W.E. Vine, who said that the meaning of the Greek word translated destroy is not extinction, but ruin. But I'm telling you, in Matthew 2.13, Herod didn't want to ruin the baby Jesus. He wanted to kill him. In Matthew 12.14 and Mark 3.6, the Pharisees didn't want to ruin Jesus. They wanted to kill him. In Luke 17.27 and 29, the people of Noah's day and those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah were not ruined. They were killed. In each of these cases and many others, the word means to kill, not ruin. And in each case, the Greek word is used in what is called the active voice, that's a Greek term, to describe what one person does to another in a, in a synoptic gospel, which is all true of Matthew 10, 28 as well. Jesus is clearly saying not to fear men who can kill only the body but can't kill the soul, but rather to fear God who can kill both in hell. And in the cases that Dr. Fernandez cited where the word is translated something like lost, the word isn't being used in that grammatical form. 
But again, my argument was not primarily based on texts which use certain words. I told you that a host of psalms paint a picture of the fate of the lost in which they fade and wither like grass, are slain, broken and dashed to pieces, melt away like wax, disappear like a dream from one's memory. I showed you that Jude and Peter compare the fate of the lost to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah and the people who lived at the time of the flood, all of whom were killed. I pointed you to the parable of weeds being completely burned up in fire in Matthew 13, alluding to Malachi who said that the wicked would be burned up in an oven and reduced to ashes beneath the feet of the righteous. And that Jesus interprets this parable by saying that that's what will happen to the lost. And as we've already talked about, of course somebody's going to weep and gnash when he's burned to death. And I pointed you to the imagery of Isaiah 66.24, quoted by Jesus in Mark 9.48, in which, as Dr. Fernandez acknowledged, the lost have been slain and their corpses are being completely devoured by fire and maggots. None of those historical examples, analogies, and images were responded to. Now, Dr. Fernandez did respond to uh, my argument from Revelation by saying that I reject the literal existence of the Antichrist and false prophet. It's not exactly true to begin with, But either way, John's entire vision is in the form of vivid symbolism. Dr. Fernandez doesn't believe the Antichrist will be a seven-headed, ten-horned beast that looks like a lion, a leopard, and a bear. He doesn't believe that a blood-drunk, vampiric prostitute with Babylon written on her forehead will be riding the Antichrist like a horse. He doesn't believe that the woman who gave birth to Jesus wears the sun or or that she stands on the earth's moon or that Satan spit a river of water out of his mouth in order to try and drown the woman. He doesn't believe that the earth saved that woman by opening its mouth to swallow that water. But John sees all of those things in his vision. This is symbolism which has got to be carefully interpreted. Now, in in the interest of interpreting it, I gave you a bunch of reasons why the proper interpretation of this imagery is that the risen lost will die rather than live forever in hell. I pointed out that the imagery of fire and sulfur and of rising smoke comes from Sodom and Gomorrah and Edom, cities that were destroyed and whose inhabitants were slain. I pointed out that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire too, even though they aren't concrete entities in reality and can't experience torment. Their fate in the fire symbolizes the complete end of death. And I pointed out that John and God interpret the imagery themselves, saying that it symbolizes that the risen lost will die a second time. Dr. Fernandez didn't address any of that or make any attempt to actually exegete, uh, that means uh, interpret, the imagery for you. Instead, he just told you that one of the experts that I cited, G.K. Beale, believes in eternal conscious torment. Uh, what he didn't tell you is that the other expert that I cited, uh, Richard Bauckham, is not only somebody that Dr. Fernandez very highly respects, but also shares my view of hell. Now, I don't have a lot of time left, so let me just say a thing or two about a couple of other issues that have come up. Dr. Fernandez argues that degrees of punishment are more consistent with his view, but if you think about it, there's not a significant difference in degree of torment after a thousand trillion years of it, and it will only have just begun. Also, he said in his opening that justice demands that we deserve the ultimate punishment. Well, wait a minute. So one person deserves a greater ultimate punishment and a different person deserves a lesser ultimate punishment? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. And don't forget, in his book, Hijacking the Historical Jesus, Dr. Fernandez said it was Jesus' death that was the ultimate price. So maybe I was right after all. Maybe death is the ultimate punishment, not eternal torment. But a death that is inflicted by more painful means for some than for others, maybe. Now, Dr. Fernandez also thinks that my view of hell logically leads to physicalism and soul sleep, and maybe that's why we spent a lot of time in question and answer. But he bases this on his mistaken belief that I define death as cessation of existence. I don't. Death means to cease to live. When a body dies, it still exists, but it's a corpse. And dualist annihilationists, dualists are those who believe in in an immaterial soul, they recognize, as per James 2.26, that when a body dies, the spirit lives on in the first death. But as Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, both body and soul will be killed in hell. 
So Dr. Fernandez's arguments just have not risen to the challenge. The case I presented for conditional immortality and annihilationism remains strong and unrefuted. So you can and should most definitely embrace the clear biblical teaching of annihilationism and conditional immortality, even if you still believe that the soul lives on after the body dies the first death while it awaits resurrection. Thank you. Thank you, Chris and Dr. Phil. Okay, um, when he talks about uh, immortality, and uh, I'm not here arguing that traditionalists are infallible, okay? And I kind of get embarrassed to say some of these great minds like John Wesley, I just think that they were not consistent uh, with their terminology. I do not believe that the Bible teaches that those in hell will experience eternal life um, they're not living. The Bible would say, no, it's eternal. That's the duration. But the quality is not such that it would be classified as life. So they have eternal conscious existence, but the Bible doesn't call it. Nowhere does the Bible call it life. And uh, so I'm not going to defend those traditionalists. Um, uh, John 6, 49 50, where the people in the wilderness, uh, they ate manna and died. Yeah, because it was only physical nourishment. Jesus says, you eat my bread and you'll live forever. Because he can give you... Manna doesn't give you eternal life. Manna doesn't save you forever. Um, I believe Jesus died, suffered and died for our sins. Okay? Um, So, I don't know. He's making it sound like just the sufferings. No, it's suffering and death. He suffered and died for our sins. He became a man. God the Son became a man and suffered and died for our sins. He talks about Matthew 10, 28, uh, the destroying both the body and the soul in hell. Um, I believe in a distinct body and, and soul. I'm not sure that, that Chris does. So I don't know why he puts so much stock in that, that verse. But Herod wanting to kill Jesus, um, killed, it just doesn't mean annihilate, though. Even the, among the ancients, among the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the ancient Egyptians, and the ancient Jews, they believed in the hereafter. So death means, yeah, death means that the body began, you know, the body is no longer animated, uh, but you continue to have conscious existence uh, in, uh, in the hereafter. And so I don't see how those verses have any, anything to do with what we're debating tonight. He brings up Psalms. There's a lot of figurative language. It's, it's, poet, it's poetry. And uh, Isaiah 66, I'm a premillennialist, so I see the corpses there. It's from the battle Armageddon. And Isaiah's rolling up the new heavens and new earth, which is after the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. They're looking upon the corpses, and then God's word is promising that their worm is not going to die and their fires are not going to be quenched. But So he does talk about eternal torment there, and at least that's the way the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, understood it. Uh, G.K. Beale. Uh, the great expositor of Revelation wrote this huge mammoth work on Revelation. He respects Beale's research. He's correct. I do respect Balkum, but I disagree with him. But Beale doesn't believe. All those questions that he asked, do you believe the Antichrist will have seven heads and ten horns, about the four horsemen? Beale would answer this the same way I, I do. No. But Beale still believes, as I do, and I think he's a great exegete of the word, that the book of Revelation teaches eternal conscious torment. Um, uh, the, uh, I've been accused of the, the slippery slope, uh, arguing that annihilation leads to soul sleep and to physicalism. I'm just trying to sound a warning to the evangelical church, okay? 
Uh, I believe that the logical progression of thought in this area, that if you're going to hold to annihilationism, I think it's kind of a package deal if you're going to be logical. Now, there are annihilation. If I were debating what I would consider an inconsistent annihilationist, uh, I would take a different track. Okay, I would, I would argue that it's unfair to annihilate, for God to annihilate them at the end, if some guy that died in 1000 or 5000 BC, that he would suffer for, or for 3000 BC, he would suffer for 5000 years and then get annihilated, while somebody maybe way worse than him died a month ago and then gets annihilated. Why would the other guy be consciously tormented? So I think that would be, I would slam them for inconsistency uh, with Chris. Uh, I'm, I'm dealing with a, a very logical um, annihilationist, and so I don't think it's a slippery slope. I think it's a reductio ad absurdum argument, reducing your opponent's uh, position to absurdity. And I think that annihilation, if you can hold annihilation, soul sleep and physicalism are going to follow. Um, my point about the Jehovah's Witnesses and all, I kind of ran out of time in my, in my rebuttal, my, my point was just this about Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists. I find it highly unlikely that cults and aberrant groups have been right about hell for 150 years, whereas the Bible-believing church has had, it, has, has had it wrong for over two millennia. That just doesn't make sense. And, and the examples he gave of Mormons getting it right or whatever has nothing to do with what I'm saying. It just sounds weird that the cults would get it right for 150 years and the church has had it wrong uh, throughout all this time. Uh, now, a human being means... Uh, an existing human, human being in the process of existing. Uh, if death means annihilation, then when Jesus' human nature died, I would think that that would mean he would cease to be a human being during his time in the tomb. And so there's a problem there. You know, the hypostatic union, Jesus is one person with two distinct natures forever, yet you've got uh, a dead uh, body in the tomb. When we look at a dead body, we don't say, wow, uh, a dead, existing human being. We say, no, those are the remains of a human being. Okay? Uh, but this is all, this all comes together with annihilation, soul sleep, and right on down the line. Now, if the traditionalist is right, and physical death is separation of the soul from the body, then Jesus continued to exist in both his divine and human natures while his body was in the tomb. Um, for, Je- for Christa to say that Jesus continued to exist... Uh, as a dead human being while denying the existence of a human soul is, uh, is incoherent at, at best. Uh, he talks about the early, early church fathers and all. Uh, Schaff, Anderson, uh, Shedd, um, these guys all stated that the apostolic fathers and the early church fathers taught traditionalism. Now, maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, but these were the experts in the field. And I fear that uh, annihilationists today are not being real careful about certain passages that they're uh, interpreting. Um, for instance, the, probably the foremost expert on Athanasius' views, in Philip Schaff's work, uh, Archibald Robertson states that, though it might sound like it, Athanasius wasn't teaching annihilationism because, anni- because in another work, in Against the Heathen, um, Athanasius declares that he believed in, in the immortality of the soul. So whatever he was talking about, this movement towards non-existence, uh, should be viewed in a more Platonic sense. I don't agree with everything Athanasius taught, but what I'm saying is one of the things he did not teach was annihilationism. He argues that etern- I, I believe eternal torment is worse than annihilation. Um, 
he talks about the death penalty being worse than well we don't we're not supposed to torture our prisoners okay if we constantly tortured our prisoners then the death penalty would be a break okay and um but we don't tor- most of our prisoners live better than most people in third world countries okay um so uh so uh but whatever the case eternal torment i think is much worse than our lives. I, I have loved ones like everybody here i have loved ones that died without jesus and um I would I would rather annihilation be true than eternal conscious torment, but but I just don't think it's it's biblical. That's what I like about Chris. He's he's at least trying to make a biblical argument. I disagree with the the conclusions he draws, but but he's sticking to the Bible, and I think we need to applaud him um, for that. Um, uh, I, one of my problems with rethinking hell, if we're going to be rethinking hell, then it, then I think it's, it's going to move to rethinking the intermediate state. Rethinking the non-material soul, rethinking Christ's death, re- reinterpreting biblical passages, reinterpreting early church fathers. Uh, if you're a premillennialist like me and believe Jesus will literally reign on earth, then it's going to mean reinterpreting the Antichrist and the millennium uh, as well. Um, now, Chris acts like, like he and his colleagues alone search the relevant scriptural passages in an unbiased manner. I disagree. I think we all have biases. And just growing up in a postmodern culture, both of us, uh, where there's such a big emphasis on tolerance and stuff like that, maybe subconsciously, Chris has a, a bias in that direction. I don't know. But the idea that the annihilationists are coming at this in an unbiased manner, whereas the church's greatest thinker, thinkers for the past 1,500 to 2,000 years have been, uh, been biased, look, we all have uh, our biases. Now, if you're a premillennialist like me and you believe Jesus will literally reign on earth for a thousand years and there will be a literal antichrist and false prophet, uh, then these passages are strong evidence. Uh, Revelation uh, 20, verse 10, and Revelation 14, 9 to 11 are incredibly strong evidence uh, for eternal conscious torment. And so I, I'm just concerned that people would look at the biblical language when he describes torment. Uh, eternal death. He describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth, many lashes, um, and uh, I think that's eternal conscious torment. Thank you. And now Chris will make his uh, closing arguments. <clears throat> the proposition that Dr. Fernandez and I have debated tonight is the punishment of hell will be annihilation, the everlasting loss of life and conscious existence. I presented three arguments in support of this proposition. Let me remind you of them now and how it is that Dr. Fernandez responded. First, I demonstrated that the Bible teaches that immortality is a gift given only to the saved and that only they will live forever, and so therefore the lost will not live forever. Dr. Fernandez's response was that uh, the traditional view isn't that the lost will rise immortal to live forever, but I demonstrated that's precisely what it is. When a person's dead body comes out of the ground alive and lives forever, eternal life is what it is, and they're immortal. Which is why so many traditionalists weren't inconsistent, they just said what they believed, which is that the lost would live forever in hell, including many people that Dr. Fernandez specifically said share his view of hell. Secondly, I demonstrated that the Bible teaches that the punishment Jesus bore in our place was, uh, as our substitute was death. And so therefore the lost who must instead bear their own punishment will likewise be punished with death. At first, Dr. Fernandez didn't address the death of Christ and instead said that the suffering that Jesus experienced was the equivalent of the eternity of suffering that we deserved. 
But then we're left with no good answer to the question what penalty was left to pay with his death, which is why Dr. Fernandez went on to add death, even though the lost won't die. Third, I demonstrated that the Bible teaches that the lost will be destroyed, meaning that their lives will come to an end. I cited a host of texts, including historical examples of final judgment, analogies, and symbolic imagery, all of which point to the final death of the lost. Dr. Fernandez didn't address most of those, instead saying only that the Greek word translated destroy really, doesn't mean, or really means ruin, even though it clearly means slay or kill in a lot of places, including Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says that the soul isn't killed in the first death by men, but that we should fear God who can kill both body and soul in hell. Now, in response to Dr. Fernandez's case for eternal life in hell, I demonstrated that there were conditionalists in the first centuries of the church and in recent centuries, including respected evangelicals like the late John Stott. I explained that death, not eternal life in hell, may be the ultimate punishment, but that the argument that we deserve the ultimate punishment is pure philosophical speculation. I pointed out that the traditional view of hell prompts revulsion and ridicule as often as it does repentance, and I explained that death is cessation of life, not of existence in the way that a corpse exists but is dead. I pointed out that more cultists and non-Christian religions believe in eternal torment than annihilation, and I explained that you can consistently believe in conditionalism and a traditional view of the soul. So none of Dr. Fernandez's arguments for eternal life in hell stand up to scrutiny, and my case remains strong and unchallenged. But I don't expect you to be convinced immediately. You You obviously should not change your mind too hastily. You should take your time, You should study the topic in greater depth, read the best books that both sides of the debate have to offer. Dr. Fernandez and I can both can offer the best books that both sides have to offer. And even after doing all of that, I don't necessarily expect you to change your mind. What I do expect, however, is that after this debate is over, you'll think differently about evangelicals who share my view of hell. We are not bleeding heart liberals who can't stand the idea of hell. We're not cultists blindly following the lies of self-proclaimed mouthpieces for God. We're conservative evangelicals committed to the supreme authority of Scripture. And it's that commitment to Scripture that forces us to believe in conditional immortality and annihilationism. Several months ago, two teachers that I'm a big fan of, Dr. James White and Dr. Michael Brown, uh, who are also friends with one another, they debated Calvinism versus Arminianism, which is another debate that Dr. Fernandez and I should do. That topic is one which often generates more heat than light. But their debate was widely acknowledged as one in which two Christian brothers and friends were able to passionately debate the topic, but with charity, respect, and love. It served as a model for how Christians can disagree strongly with one another on a non-essential doctrine like this without sacrificing unity. Unity in the body of Christ is what drives me. Unity in the body of Christ is what I'm passionate about when it comes to the issue of hell. And the issue of hell is too often treated as if it's cause for division. Some of the people in this audience can know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, There are certainly issues worthy of division. Essentials of of the Christian faith, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ. But the nature of hell is not one of them. My hope tonight is that my friend Dr. Fernandez and I have been able, like Drs. White and Brown, to model how it is that evangelical Christians who disagree strongly on this topic can nevertheless treat each other as brothers in Christ with charity, love, and respect enjoying unity on the basis of our mutual faith in Jesus Christ and our shared commitment to the authority of Scripture. Thank you. Chris, now Dr. Phil, your closing arguments. Okay. I'd like to thank Christ Church of Federal Way for hosting this debate and my friend Chris Date for debating me. In my humble opinion, Chris Date's three arguments for annihilationism have failed. The traditionalists at least should not believe that the lost will live forever or have immortality. 
Instead, the lost will experience eternal conscious existence that the Bible describes as suffering, torment, and punishment. When the Bible speaks of Christ's atonement for us, it means that the God-man died on the cross for our sins. He did not cease to exist, but his spirit was separated from his body. Both of Jesus' two distinct natures continued to consciously exist after his death on Calvary's cross. The annihilationist definition of death and destruction as annihilation is faulty. The Bible defines death as separation, the soul from the body, and the spirit from fellowship with God. The Bible defines destruction in the context of hell as eternal torment, no rest day and night, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and many lashes. According to Schaff, Anderson, Shedd, Crockett, and other leading experts on early church history, Chris is wrong. The early church taught eternal conscious suffering. Uh, Chris agrees with me. The Reformers taught it as well. I have shown that the Bible also clearly teaches eternal conscious torment. The biblical case for hell as eternal conscious torment is strong. I think sometimes we can go into so many different cross-references in an attempt not to explain a passage, but to explain away what a passage is clearly saying. Now, both Chris and I agree that no Christian should... uh, both Chris and I agree that no Christian should become an annihilationist just because they think it makes God kinder or gentler. God has the right to eternally torment the wicked. Chris agrees. No one should allow the politically correct sense of, into- of tolerance to influence their view of hell. So whatever decision you make, let the Bible be the deciding factor. I still think that it's rather strange that if Chris is right about hell, cultic and heretical groups have been right about it, whereas the church has gotten it wrong. For such a long time. I still believe that Chris Date, as brilliant as he is, is a logically consistent annihilationist. Due to this, he now denies that humans have a non-material soul and that we continue to have conscious existence between our physical death and future resurrection. This is not a slippery slope argument. If one accepts annihilation of the lost, assuming he or she is logically consistent, soul sleep and physicalism will follow. I don't think that it's a coincidence that Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists not only believe in annihilation of the wicked, but also soul sleep and physicalism as well. Jesus' account of Lazarus and the rich man become a mere fictitious story. Chris rejects Paul's teaching that for the believer to be apart from the body is to be at home with the Lord. It is not the cessation of conscious existence. Now, he doesn't believe Paul's words, but he interprets it in a way that I just... I just don't get. Today, as brilliant as Chris is, and as much as he loves our Lord and Savior, Chris has misrepresented the early church father's view uh, of hell. Um, He has gone on an endless search of scriptures, uh, which I believe cloud the clear meaning of several passages that teach eternal conscious torment of the lost. Those scriptures interpret scriptures. We should should not use multiple cross-references and endless word studies in an attempt to change the clear meaning of scriptural phrases such as tormented forever, ever, and ever, no rest day and night, weeping and gnashing of teeth, many lashes, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I beseech the Bible-believing church to hold fast to the traditional view of hell. If we depart from the traditional view and embrace annihilationism, other traditional doctrines will fall as well. Um, The Bible says those who accept the mark of the beast will be tormented. 
with fire and brimstone. They will have no rest day and night. Scripture also says that Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet will be thrown in the lake of fire, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus said that the lost will be thrown into the same lake of fire prepared for Satan and his demons. Jesus describes this eternal punishment as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Though I wish harm and suffering on no man, I believe the Bible clearly teaches the eternal conscious torment of the lost. Therefore, the church should not rethink hell. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you, Dr. Phil. Let's give uh, both these men a round of applause. God bless you, man. Yeah, God bless you as well. That's good. We'll take a 10-minute break, and then we'll meet back, and then it will be uh, your time to be able to ask questions of them. All right? All right, this is your opportunity to, to question either Dr. Phil or Chris. And you can, you can address your questions to one or both, and we'll allow them to respond. And the other person, if they have something, have something to weigh in on the topic, we'll give them a few moments to, to weigh in as well when you ask your questions. All right, so two mics, and go ahead. Question? Okay. Just, uh, yeah, just grab a microphone, come up and, and to the microphones, and then you can address either one. I have a question for Chris. Uh, what is your method of interpretation of the scriptures? I would characterize it as the historical grammatical method. Yeah, and I would agree that's, that's the, the you, you basically look at the passage in its proper context um, and how it would be understood. You put it in its historical setting and you try to grammatically analyze it. And uh, yes, I would agree with that, that method. I wonder if you both could comment on the term, this is the second death in Revelation 20, because it seems like that's um, like a definition of a state. Okay, you want to go over first? Sure. Um, so the thing to keep in mind is that throughout, and I'm going to try to make this brief, there, there are many places in Scripture where there's apocalyptic imagery, symbolism, but somebody will break into the imagery and interpret it. You recall Joseph, who interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the, and the chief baker. Uh, the dream was very symbolic and, and full of imagery, and then Joseph interpreted it. Um, this is what happens when John and God him, himself call uh, the final fate of the lost the second death. They are interpreting the imagery. So in the imagery, you've got a fire, a lake of fire and sulfur, symbolism of destruction, in which uh, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are thrown and tormented for eternity. And I gave you a host of reasons why that should be interpreted in the way that I do. But don't take my interpretation. Take John's and God's interpretation. Because when, when the Bible interprets its own imagery, the interpretation is clear and straightforward, or at least more clear and straightforward than the imagery. So the second death isn't another metaphor. It's the interpretation of the imagery. The risen lost are going to die a second time, which is my view. So, Yeah, in that same chapter, Revelation chapter 20, it, it talks about the first resurrection, uh, those who are raised at Jesus' return, the second coming of Christ, those who are raised uh, to uh, immortality, and, um, and that those who are not raised to immortality at that point, they face the second resurrection. And then we find out about a second death later on. 
it seems to me that all is being said is that the first death is physical death. And then the second death is, um, uh, is basically eternal spiritual death. And so that's the, the final cutting off of the person from, from fellowship with God throughout all eternity, eternal separation from God. This question is primarily for Dr. Fernandez, as I welcome Chris's input as well. Uh, Revelation 14 is one of the primary texts used to support eternal conscious torment, uh, where it says the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And you would hold that that's literal, that's not imagery that's supposed to be interpreted some other way. Uh, but as Chris pointed out, uh, John takes language directly from Isaiah 34, where it's describing the destruction of Edom. And it says the exact same phrase, that the smoke of Edom ascends forever. Uh, now, my question for you is, do you believe the smoke of Edom destroyed thousands of years ago is still ascending? And if not, then why do we have to interpret Revelation differently than Isaiah? Yeah, I, I just, first off, if that's all I said with the smoke rose forever and ever, I wouldn't, I wouldn't see that. That is a knockdown issue for um, eternal conscious torment. It's the no rest day and night um, that, that really gets me on that passage. Um, but whatever the case, uh, the destruction of Edom, I think... I think commonly in the Old Testament, we see passages taught where God seems to be talking about uh, temporal judgments and things of that sort. So I think the destruction of Edom, God uses as scatological, last days, uh, end-time judgment type language for an event uh, just to uh, emphasize it. It's just hyperbole, conscious exaggeration. So that's how I would view it there. Whereas I would see it more literal in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, because it's accompanied by the no rest uh, day and night. Yeah, I would just add that Dr. Fernandez is right. Uh, the smoke rising forever isn't everything it says. It also does speak of day and night, which that passage in Isaiah does as well. Night and day it shall not be quenched. But Edom isn't still burning. Or if you believe it's going to be destroyed in the future, no traditionalist I know of thinks that Edom will literally burn forever. And John also speaks of fire and sulfur, which is imagery coming from the Old Testament, meaning fi uh, destruction and death. And he also mentions drinking of God's wrath, which comes from the Old Testament where people are slaughtered. Now, somebody can claim that they think that what John's doing in his imagery or what that the Holy Spirit is doing for John is repurposing Old Testament imagery to mean something entirely different than it meant in the Old Testament. But there's got to be an evidence that that's what he's doing. You can't just assume that's what he's doing. You've got to argue contextually for that. But there's nothing contextually in this passage that supports that contention. So, so my question is for Chris. Um, Chris, so the, uh, the passage in Revelation, I think it's 20, which states uh, that there would be suffering, uh, torment for day, day and night. How, how would a conditionalist interpret that passage? Conditionalists interpret it in primarily two different ways. You have... Um, some conditionalists who think that the devil and satanic beings called the, fa the false prophet and the beast will in fact be tormented forever and ever because the text of Revelation 20 only says that they'll be tormented forever and ever. It doesn't say anybody else will. Uh, and so, for example, the author of this book out, that you can pick up out in the foyer, who's a premillennialist and a dispensationalist like my friend Phil, um, that's his perspective. That's not the position I take. The beast and the false prophet are explicitly interpreted, or at least the beast is explicitly interpreted in Revelation to represent a, a, a city, a kingdom, a kingdom of successive kings. Uh, and he says that the, um, the sixth king is currently alive at the time that he's writing this. So the, the, a kingdom 
And all of its citizens, nobody thinks that a kingdom and all of its citizens are being burned alive forever in eternity. It's, it's, uh, it's symbolism that comes straight from Daniel 7, where the exact same beast is killed and, th- and its dead body is thrown into a fire. On its surface, these, Im- these images ca- uh, contradict one another, but it's because they're imagery. But the, but the angel interprets Daniel 7, the, beast, the, fate, the fate of the beast in that chapter, Daniel 7, as representing the end of a kingdom's dominion which is exactly what I think it means in Revelation. The beast is representative of a kingdom, and the beast being tormented forever in the lake of fire is symbolism communicating that a kingdom's dominion will come to an end. So that's... In response to that, I just want to clarify that both Chris and I see tremendous amounts of symbolism, even symbolism in the book of Revelation that comes from the Old Testament, as G.K. Beale, you cited G.K. Beale, Um, But we both believe that there is a literal meaning to each of these passages behind the figurative language. So it's not like it's either literal or it's symbolic, period. It's a lot more complicated than that, so complicated that G.K. Beale, that agrees with Chris and I, that if you're going to... I taught lectures on Revelation about four or five times. I taught courses on the Bible College or Bible Institute level, and, uh, and I preached through it at least two or three times. Um, so I understand the significance of Old Testament symbolism in the book of Revelation. But like G.K. Beale, I still see the book of Re- I mean, hell under fire, G.K. Beale contributes a chapter arguing for eternal conscious torment from the book of Revelation. So, uh, yeah, we agree about all the symbolism, but in the end, what, what does it mean? And that's where we, we part ways. Uh, my question is for Chris. Um, in the book of Luke 16, talking about the rich man, mm-hmm. um, Jesus, being God himself, refers to the um, rich man as suffering and in anguish. Um, it comes across as a man crying out, not et- annihilated, but suffering ongoing. Can you share on that? Yeah, the answer is really simple. Even if you take it literally, it's talking about Hades. It never talks about hell. You've got to understand that the King James Version translators, the King James Version is great, but it has some serious mistakes. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that it does is it confuses, it, it uses the same word hell to translate different Greek words and ideas. So Dr. Fernandez has correctly been referring to hell as Gehenna. Uh, it's the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom is where that word comes from. But Hades is not hell. Hades is the intermediate state, the place of the dead, the underworld. And in this, even if we take it absolutely literal, the, the, the rich man is suffering in Hades, the intermediate state. Now, of course, I don't take it literally, but if you do, it still has nothing to do with hell. And I would just differ on this point, though. I would say that, yes, it is speaking of Hades, the intermediate state where you both have Lazarus in, in a state of conscious comfort state, and then you have uh, the rich man in conscious torment. But I think it does speak to the issue because... I, I really think it's, it's almost a package deal. If, if no Hades, then annihilation seems to make more sense. If Hades, I think eternal conscious torment then makes, makes sense. So, uh, I mean, I would have a problem. Like, um, if you believe in Hades, that you could be tormented in Hades, but then hell is annihilation, you know, again, then you've got guys who just because they died earlier have been experiencing conscious torment for thousands of years longer than, uh, than a guy who dies like, you know, two years before the return of Christ. 
and uh, and it just doesn't doesn't seem to make sense. I think Chris's view of annihilation is much more consistent with uh, the the view of of others. Like like for instance, you mentioned the author of that book uh, sounds like a great guy, sounds like a real scholarly guy, but he agrees with me that Revelation twenty ten, the author of of that book, that. Uh, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet are literal characters in the last days, and they will be tormented along with Satan forever and ever in the in the lake, eternal conscious torment, uh, forever and ever in the lake of fire. But then he says, yeah, but that's just them. That doesn't say anything about human beings. Well, number one, I, I think I can make a strong case the Antichrist and the false prophet are human beings. Demon-possessed, but they're still human beings. Um, and number two... If we're going to go to the same place, why does it serve such a different purpose for Satan? Also, I see Chris as being much more consistent than the uh, author of that work, and that's why I do include in my refutation of annihilation of the lost, I include a refutation of soul sleep uh, as well, because I, I think it, it logically should be a package deal. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8 through 10, it says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who ascended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Question for Chris. Is it possible that the propitiation that Jesus paid on behalf of those who receive him is not only death, but also eternal punishment. Because if it is, then there would be more for the lost to pay than just to die. Well, we all agree that Jesus both suffered and died. So that's not the question. The question is, did Jesus die in our place? You see, uh, one of the things that I think might, it still might, some people might be missing is that the concept of a substitute means that Jesus suffers, suffered something in our place so that we won't have to. But if that's the case, then those who reject that gift have to suffer it themselves. But if Jesus' body was rendered a corpse, yeah, I mean, yes, he suffered, and we agree the lost will suffer. So we both agree that Jesus suffered pain as part of the atonement, but he also died. And if the lost don't die after they've risen from the dead, then Jesus didn't die as our substitute. That's okay, so my point. The reason, my reason for reading that passage in Ephesians is it says he also descended. So there's another aspect besides just dying. Well, I think descended here is actually referring to him uh, descending from heaven. I don't think it's referring to him descending into Hades. But the scripture says, and he also descended into lower parts of the earth. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's referring to the earth being lower than the heavens. Uh, I haven't I studied this passage a lot, but even if it's... A, look, a lot of people, uh, including annihilationists, believe that Jesus descended into the underworld, Hades, or whatever. But nobody thinks that... Few Orthodox Christians think that what Jesus was undergoing in Hades was continuing the atonement. Why? Because Jesus says that it's finished uh, on the cross. So I don't know of any Orthodox Christians who think that Jesus continued the atonement in, in, in Hades. In fact, the only people I do know, that, know that, that believe that are the Word of Faith movement, which are heretics. Do you want to add anything to that uh, question? Yeah, only that I would say that there's a very ancient tradition, goes back to uh, at least around 160 A.D., that Jesus did go, into, based on this passage and a few other passages, did go into Hades to evacuate the comfort compartment of those believers and then took them to heaven. But I, I feel weird, but I agree with 
Chris on, on this, even though it's a great ancient tradition, what it does show, though, <coughs> is though that uh, there was this belief of continued existence after death in the early church. Um, but I think that those passages could be easily explained just by the incarnation, yeah. that he descended by, by becoming a man. Uh, having said that, great Christian theologians do take that to be Jesus' descent into Hades in between his, his death and, and resurrection. Okay, my question is for you, Chris. Um, you know, I know Jesus said that you should know uh, uh, people by their fruits, okay? And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? You know what's in a person's heart by what's coming out of their mouth, okay? Jesus also said that when, when, it, when it comes time to defend the faith, that we don't even really need to uh, worry about what we're going to say because the Spirit would give us uh, words to say to defend the truth, okay? Um, I'm kind of hearing your heart, and I'm hearing uh, Pastor Phil's heart, and of course I hear him a lot more than I hear you because I attend this church, but I guess my question for you is, what is your purpose? Because um, uh, to, to, our goal, from what I understand in Scripture, is to spread the gospel and win souls uh, to the kingdom of heaven. So what is your purpose? Because I think at the beginning you said that... Um, you're, you are uh, that hell. The question of hell has turned more people away from Christ than brought people towards Christ. Um, and it seems like you're trying to uh, convince the church that the doctrine of hell uh, is doing Jesus a disservice in the sense that it's turning people away because they're getting upset that you know uh, there's going to be some punishment for not believing in Jesus. But at the same time, I see Jesus. Even when he told Peter, you know, um, Peter was uh, criticizing, you know, Jesus' message because, man, you're turning people away, okay? And then Peter, uh, uh, Jesus uh, turned to Peter and said, well, how about you? Would you like to go too, right? So it doesn't seem like Jesus is concerned about people getting offended at his message. And I'm just trying, I'm trying to, to, to understand what your evangelical... You know, as an evangelist, what the purpose of your message is, what, what's, what spirit is behind your message. Okay. So, first of all, let me just clarify something. I, didn't, I never actually included in my opening statement the argument that hell turns people away. That was specifically a response to Dr. Fernandez's argument that the traditional view of hell uh, is a cause for repentance. My point was that as often as it's a cause for repentance, it's a cause for repulsion, revulsion, and ridicule. Um, so we shouldn't be basing our belief on how we think it's going to be responded to. The Holy Spirit is who changes hearts and minds, not us. And the best impact of, in our ministry is going to be had when the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of our message. That was the point that I was making there. Now, as for my purpose as an evangelist, uh, I actually don't agree that our purpose is solely or even primarily to win souls. Uh, I take the Great Commission to include both conversion and discipleship. Mm -hmm. So my, my purpose, uh, you know, there are some who are called specifically to be evangelists. There are some who are called to be pastors. There are some who are called to be teachers and so forth. I tend to focus more on discipleship of existing believers than I do conversion, although I do speak to uh, unbelievers and try to convert them. Uh, when it comes to this specific topic, the reason why I spend time on this is because, like I said, I care about unity. I can't tell you guys the number of times I've been told by believers that I'm going to the hell they think I deny because I believe in this view. I can't tell you the number of people who've lost jobs, at least one of whom is in this room right now, it's not me, because they hold to this view of hell. 
there are the, the, too many traditionalists treat this issue as if it's cause for division in the church. And my heart is about unity in the church. And so what I'm trying to demonstrate to those of you here and everybody who's watching on the video is that two Christians can be committed firmly to the authority of Scripture and disagree on this topic, but still be united in our love and respect for one another and in our mutual faith in Jesus Christ and in our shared commitment to the Word. That's my passion. It, it, and um, I, I just like to say... Uh, um, the main reason why I brought up that we should not reject eternal conscious torment because we're hoping for a kinder, gentler God and things of that sort is not because Chris holds to it, but it's my concern. My, my main goal isn't to win a debate. My main goal is to move people um, towards Jesus, not away from Jesus. And um, and so my main reason for bringing that up was kind of when transcended the purpose of this debate. It's just like, hey, look, if you're out there and you're thinking of denying eternal conscious torment because you've been influenced by postmodern tolerance, um, don't go there. And so I really, it kind of wasn't directed at Chris, and though it was some, a valuable paragraph there. But I'm really concerned about the people, you know, that are out here, the people that are coming to hear it. I know Pedro personally, so I know his heart, so I know he's getting is that just getting the gospel message out, but the gospel itself is offensive. And if people are going to, you know, you mentioned Russell, um, Anthony Flew, who embraced God's existence late in life, still the two reasons why he refused to come to Christ. I hope he came to Christ on his deathbed, but we don't have any evidence that he did, so we don't know. Um, but the two reasons were... Um, uh, because of eternal conscious torment and because of Calvinism. When he read Romans 9, he interpreted it the way Calvinists do. So just as I wouldn't say, well, therefore, Calvinism is false. It kept Anthony Flew from coming to heaven. I wouldn't say eternal conscious torment is false. It kept Anthony Flew from coming to heaven. We would both agree, whatever the truth is, um, God's the boss. He is truth as the source of all truth, and we need to, to submit to that. So, yeah, neither one of us would say, let's change the gospel message to make it um, more uh, comfortable for people to come to Christ. However, I think we would agree a, a lot of evangelicals are pretty Some much do doing that. Too. They're watering things down, and, and we shouldn't. And uh, So this is a biblical debate about between two guys who love the Lord. I think it's a serious issue. I will comment on this, though. Um, if you start an evangelical uh, organization and you say all we want to defend are the essentials to the faith, okay, and then if a guy denies eternal conscious torment, you probably shouldn't kick that guy out. At the same time, though, uh, um, if somebody starts a ministry and they have a statement of faith, if, if they choose to add that to their statement of faith and uh, if, uh, if someone doesn't agree to it, they might have to find employment somewhere else. And I, would, I wouldn't want to force people to say, hey, here's the only four or five doctrines that, uh, that you can uh, have in your Christian ministry. And so good people um, may have to seek employment somewhere. I mean, just like I would never, I would never pastor a church that was into like, you know, well, holy laughter or, well, I'm, I'm not like, I'm somewhere in between the Pentecostals and the Baptists so that it used to be the Baptists didn't want me and the Pentecostals don't want me. And, um, but, um, but whatever the case, I try to pastor a church that really fits what I'm teaching. And that's probably why I had a 
plant my own church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, let me thank you guys for uh, a really good debate tonight. Uh, my question is for Dr. Fernandez. Uh, in your argument, you appealed to the church's long history of holding to the traditional view as evidence that it must likely be true. Yet what about the Protestant Reformation that showed where the church had for centuries held wrong doctrine, specifically with regard to purgatory and other eschatological doctrines? Why should we be convinced that the length of time a doctrine has been held is good evidence for its truth? And, and secondly... As you have seemingly distanced yourself from highly regarded traditionalist theologians and scholars such as John Wesley, John MacArthur, and many others that were listed, how can you rightly claim to be defending the traditional view of hell? You seem to be articulating and defending your own flavor for it, uh, while in the same breath appealing to uh, a traditional view that's been held for so long that you don't apparently agree with. Yeah, well, two really good questions. Let me handle the second one uh, first. Uh, all I was saying is that if, uh, if traditionalists are saying that people live forever in hell, that's really sloppy language. It's not biblical language. I don't think that that automatically excommunicates me from the traditional view that hell is eternal conscious torment. And um, I don't teach the infallibility of these guys. And, uh, and these guys are all greater thinkers than me. I think it's a big blunder. I, if I saw it in my first year of theology course at Liberty University, I don't know why they didn't get it. But, but uh, and, uh, you know, maybe they uh, just were a little sloppy in their language in that one particular text. I think you make a really good point, though, about the Reformation. And that's why I would not say that my um, argument is, stands on its, on its own. And I, I think that could have been said, you know, I mean, I think that would have been a good argument against the Reformation. We say, wait a minute, if it's justification by faith alone, why didn't we say this throughout this, the centuries, you know, and stuff? Um, and I think it's a good point. It's a point worth taking, and then you move on. And that's what I tried to do. I tried to make that point, and I think we needed to move on. But I think Chris and I both agree that in the end it comes down to the biblical, the biblical text. Um, I do have a concern that there are a lot of... Uh, annihilationists that are now saying things that weren't being said within evangelical circles uh, like maybe a hundred years ago where they're trying to claim for their own um, some um, of the early church fathers who you know Philip Schaff and people of that and William Shedd people of that stature have uh, classified after studying them for their entire lives have classified those guys as traditionalists I think it's a point well taken. It certainly wasn't my whole case. You know, I, I mean, if you're keeping Travis, I would say, okay, that's a point for me. But there's a lot more points to be made. And uh, if, if most of them aren't biblical, then, uh, then, you know, then we'd be back at the Church of Rome. So good point, sir. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just say Dr. Fernandez isn't the only traditionalist who's trying to... Um, to flavor or nuance the traditional view to use biblical language because the biblical language does talk about death rather than life forever in hell. Uh, but, but people like Wayne Grudem and John MacArthur and Charles Spurgeon and, uh, and John Wesley, they weren't being sloppy. They were, believed, they were saying what it is that the traditional view is. If you have a body, our bodies one day that are now living are going to die. If they come out of the grave again, 
what are they? They're alive. They were just expressing what the traditional view is, and they will live on for that, in that sense forever in the traditional view when the Bible says they will instead die. Now, I just want to make one more point. Well, first of all, the, the question about church history was great. Uh, I wish I had mentioned the Reformation in, in uh, my rebuttal because I think that's an excellent point. As for the church fathers, I want to make one thing really, really quick. I want to make one point. The reason why people like Schaff and Shedd and some other people, uh, Robert Morey, um, infamous as he is, the reason why people like that who've done the study think that the early church were, tr- were traditionalists is because they used phrases like unquenchable fire and eternal fire and eternal punishment. But these are phrases that we think, we annihilationists think, teach our view. And, and I argued exactly that in my opening statement. So the fact that they use biblical language doesn't automatically mean they're tra- traditionalists, but that's exactly what people like Schaff and Shedd and Morey and others based their belief that the early church was uh, traditionalist on. But when you look at when they, the early church fathers used language that didn't come from Scripture, Irenaeus said that the lost would deprive themselves of length of days forever and ever. That means they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have length of days forever and ever. He was a conditionalist. Athanasius, yes, he talked about the immortality of the soul, but he was talking about the, the historical, classical sense of that phrase, which means that the soul lives on after death. He was a dualist, yes. But he believed that, uh, but he argued in his book uh, on the incarnation of the word that sin causes man to return back to the nothingness from which they came. This is, he's, he's now going beyond biblical language, at which point he reveals that he's a conditionalist. So I just wanted to touch on the church fathers there. Several times in this debate, uh, Dr. Fernandez has referenced that um, he believes conditionalism goes hand in hand with physicalism and soul sleep, uh, and that they're basically a package deal. The consistent conditionalist must hold to these as well. Um, and one of the main arguments you appeal to with that is the idea that to you it would be unjust for a man who went to Hades uh, early on versus a man who went to Hades near the return of Christ having this different uh, duration of torment there before being annihilated. Um, would not that appeal to the same sort of emotional, quasi-liberal idea of we must impose our justice upon God? If that is what God has said, could that not simply be something we must submit to under God's justice? Uh, so I would like a response to that. And then beyond that, could you flesh out in greater detail why you believe uh, conditionalism is logically incompatible with dualism? And Chris, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Okay, well, it's a mouthful. Okay, uh, first off, I do think that we have, from studying the scriptures and from being created in God's image, though fallen, I think we do have some sense of uh, justice. I think when, you know, postmodernism, I don't think, is a, is a, a good understanding uh, of what justice is. But I'm not a voluntarist. I, like most uh, church uh, theologians, church fathers throughout the centuries, am an essentialist. A voluntarist says that something is good merely because God wills it. So God's will is arbitrary. So if God did it, it's, it's got to be good because God willed it. And, and so God could have willed feeding hungry children to be evil, and he could have willed uh, slaughtering innocent people to be good. Um, I, on the other hand, am an essentialist. I believe God can only will that, that which is good, but the good is not a standard above God. Uh, God is the standard. God is by nature good. His essence is goodness, and so his will is only is not subject to anything outside of himself, um, but uh, God's will is only subject to his good nature. So I do think that we have some kind of concept of justice, and, uh, and it just strikes me that, you know, if you believe in uh, dualism, 
yet you also believe in annihilation of the lost, and you do believe in an intermediate state, and you do acknowledge that some in the intermediate state are getting punished, uh, who are going to end up in, who are going to end up being annihilated eventually, then it, it's, it does strike me as rather unfair that somebody could be, um, uh, you know, tormented for five thousand years, uh, who might have been, you know, not as bad as Hitler, uh, and then Hitler only gets tormented for maybe a uh, hundred years or whatever, and so. Um, so certainly, again, I wouldn't say that's a knockdown, drag-out argument, uh, but I do think annihilation uh, and, and soul sleep uh, do go together. And I, just looking at the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, I think that's a more consistent position uh, to take them as a package deal. I do acknowledge that there are some people that disagree, but it just seems to me that um, uh, if you're going to acknowledge conscious life after death, um, then I, I, I would think more consistent with that would then be a conscious uh, torment, eternal torment. I do think that's more, you know, and I could be wrong on that, but I, that's the view I have, and so I handle it together. And, uh, and I do think that the evangelical church needs to be warned if we go down the road, the route of... Uh, the road of annihilation, we're going to go down the road of soul sleep and all, and people can say, oh, that's a slippery slope, but that's what they said to Francis Schaeffer back in the late 1960s when he said if we legalize abortion, then human life is not going to be sacred at any stage. We're going to end up legalizing infanticide and euthanasia. And now the guy looks like a prophet, so... Yeah, I mean, the reason why that was a logical slippery slope rather than a fallacious slippery slope is because it logically followed. The problem is that Dr. Fernandez's argument for why annihilationism and physicalism are connected isn't a logical slippery slope. He thinks it is, and the reason is because he thinks and has repeatedly said, even in his closing, that we define death as annihilation. But as you might recall, I repeatedly denied that. Deni death is the cessation of life. A corpse does not cease to exist. It's still there. And yes, I do. When I look at a corpse, I, I say that's a dead person. Um, so death isn't the cessation of existence. It's a cessation of life. Uh, and so the annihilation does not logically lead to dualism. And as for the, the issue of Hades, um, you know, first of all, I think that the question was a really good one, which is that if our sense of justice is what should tell us that dualism is incompatible with annihilationism, then equally I should be able to appeal to people's sense of justice that eternal torment in hell isn't fair. Of course, I don't appeal to that, but the point is, is that the sense of justice is a double-edged sword. Uh, as for the, um, why it is that the ongoing life of the soul after death might be compatible with annihilationism, many dualists think that one really good argument for dualism is that it's necessary in order to account for resurrection. The reason being, if a person dies and they, no longer, and they, they don't live on after that point and, uh, and they're no longer conscious, if there's no part of them that continues to live on after death and their body rots away and disintegrates into the ground, then later there's no way in which the person who rises from the dead could be said to be the same as the person who died. That's, it's called the identity argument, and it's one of the arguments that philosophers, and it really is only philosophers, and I'm not a philosopher, argue that, uh, that the life of the soul must continue between death and resurrection. If Now, I don't buy 
that argument because I'm not a dualist. But if I did, then I would argue that the reason why the lost continue to live on in their souls after death, awaiting resurrection, is because it's necessary in order to be raised from the dead to be judged. So I, I think that there is a legitimate way in which somebody can be a consistent dualist and an annihilationist. Irenaeus, who was an annihilationist contrast to, uh, uh, um, in contrast to what people like uh, Shedd and Schaff and Mori say, Irenaeus was an annihilationist, but he was also a dualist. So was Athanasius. Um, it, it is very consistent. I know people in this room that are annihilationists and who are dualists. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, his argument that the two go hand in hand is not a legitimate logical slippery slope. It's a fallacious one. So. I've had a burning question inside me all evening. Uh, Chris, you touched on the topic just slightly during uh, your rebuttal on the slippery slope on page 14 of the notes. No, excuse me, 43 of the notes. But... Uh, I hope you'll see its relevance once I read one verse out of Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his very soul an offering for sin. My question is for both of you, did Jesus die the death of, of a lost soul? Did Jesus die the death of a lost soul. Of a lost soul. Uh, I, I suppose, uh, I would say I don't, I don't fully understand, you know, exactly what you mean by that. So uh, I do believe that he died in our place. I do believe that he did fully physically die. I'm even open to somewhat of a, a spiritual death and that he was forsaken by the Father while on the cross. Um, and that I, I define death in the traditional way. Check out Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words. Check out uh, Lenski's work. Check out Thayer's. The, the way all these Greek scholars, neither one of us is a Greek scholar, but all these, the way all these Greek scholars have defined death uh, is basically separation. Uh, physical death, the soul is separated from the body, uh, spiritual death, our spirits are separated from fellowship with God. So in my understanding that there's, there's full-blown death there in that Jesus, his spirit, he, he died and his spirit was separated from his body. So the Lord Jesus suffered and died for us, and I don't, I don't really understand why anybody would, would question that that's what I, what I teach. Now, I do define the word death differently than... Um, than annihilationists do, and, and that's, that's why we're having this debate tonight. Yeah, so, I mean, I do think that Jesus died the punishment that the lost souls will face in hell because I think that that punishment is death. Um, Dr. Fernandez just said that, in his view, Jesus died in, in one sense in that his body was separated from his soul. Well, that happens, in the dualist view, to both the saved and the lost in this life. So he could not have borne the first death in our place, because we, we do it too. We die that way too. He could, his separation of soul and spirit has got to be something that happen, happens to the lost in hell, not here, not in the here and now. But in his view, in Dr. Fernandez's view, and in the traditional view, the souls or the spirits of the lost will be reunited at resurrection along with the souls and spirits of the saved, but that unity will last forever for both the saved and the lost. So there is no sense in which the separation of Jesus' spirit and body, according to Dr. Fernandez's view, 
it was a substitute death for us because we wouldn't have faced that. We would have, our spirits and bodies would have been united at the resurrection and would have remained that way forever if it hadn't been for him. So the separation of his body and his spirit was not a substitute death for us in the dualist uh, and in the traditional view. Good debate, guys. Um, my question for Dr. Phil. You said that annihilationism logically leads down the road of physicalism and soul sleep. My question for you is, why does that concern you? What's that? Why is that concerning for you? Why is it concerning? I, I, for me, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that I, I felt that in this debate, the most important thing for me was not to win the debate, um, but was to educate evangelical Christians in what is at stake here. And um, I do not believe in annihilationism. I don't think it's biblical. I don't believe in soul sleep. I don't think it's biblical. Uh, I don't believe in physicalism. I don't believe that's biblical. And so that's why it's a concern to me. But basically, when you look at the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, um, uh, there does seem to be a logical connect and historical connection. And so that's something I just want to let people know, that before you go down the road towards annihilationism, look a little bit further. When I debated the age of the earth, I'm a young earther, and Dr. John Battle, president of Western Reform Seminary, he's an old earther. And we publicly debated in a church in Polesville, Washington, the age of the earth. Um, I argued not only for a young earth, but also for a global flood. Because I believe that even though there are some old earthers who believe in a global flood, the logical progression of thought from denying the young earth would be that the fossil record records the history of life on the planet earth and um, not, it was not caused by a global flood. And so I think, uh, uh, I just, I see, saw the connection. So, you know, Dr. Battle said, we're not arguing about a global flood. Well, he was a representative of U. Ross who not only denies a young earth, but also denies the global flood. And I see the logical connection. And, uh, and so I felt led to argue for, for both. And that's a choice that I'll sometimes make, uh, understanding that time is very valuable in a debate. Uh, but I believe that uh, what little say I have, what little status I have in the evangelical community, um, if I see something as a direction that we shouldn't go, and I think it's, I'm, I'm biblically correct on that, you know, I want to sound the alarm. And so that's, that's, you know, pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, um, Dr. Fernandez's concern to answer a question about physicalism or social because he doesn't think it's biblical. And I think it's perfectly legitimate if he thinks that annihilationism logically leads to physicalism or soul sleep. I think it's perfectly legitimate for him to make, the, to make that argument and to warn you about it. The problem is he failed to demonstrate that, it's logic, that it logically leads to that. So far, the strongest argument that I think he has that they, are, that they go hand in hand is the fact that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists believe both of those things. They also believe in monotheism. They also believe in, uh, you know, the inspiration of Scripture and so forth. So I, the fact that they believe those two things is, is correlation but not necessarily causation. And so therefore his argument, as legitimate as it was, as it was to make, is an argument that, that fails. It doesn't hold any water. But you, you would acknowledge, though, you hold to all of those. Now, if I were debating the author of that book, I would use... A different argument, and well, yeah. I would argue. So, 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 so basically, 
there's some typological connection for you there. No, actually there's not. I actually began to become convinced of physicalism and soul sleep before I ever questioned my view of, of hell. And the reason is because, well, I mean, I don't want to... I've, I've made a very concerted effort not to turn this into a debate about the state of the soul after death because it isn't germane to this debate. I had biblical reasons... While I was still a traditionalist when it comes to hell, I had biblical reasons for changing my view of the soul. And that didn't lead to my view of my changing view of hell. They changed separately from each other. In the end, I did end up tipping over the fence from, from on the middle of the fence of the soul, uh, in part because of my conversion to annihilationism. But the, 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 the change in idea of soul came before my change in understanding of hell. And so they're just not logically connected. They're just not. Is directed at you, Chris. Um, in the Nicene Creed, we say that Jesus ascended into heaven. So that would mean to me that he didn't spend three days in the tomb, just asleep, so to speak. Yeah, Jesus. That, and I'm. I, I am firmly convinced that Dr. Fernandez is, is going to agree with what I just with, with what I'm about to say. When the Nicene Creed says that Jesus ascended to heaven, it is not talking about between his death and his resurrection. It's talking about his ascension. You'll recall that after Jesus was resurrected, after he came out of his tomb, he spent a number of days with his followers, teaching them things that we don't even have recorded in the Gospels. And then what did he do? He ascended to heaven after his resurrection. This is not talking, the Nicene Creed isn't talking about what happened between death and resurrection. Yeah, and see, with my view, and it wouldn't, really wouldn't have anything to do with the Nicene <coughs> Creed, but it's when Mary Magdalene uh, grabs onto Jesus and... Um, and he tells her to let go because, you know, stop clinging to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. I don't think he's saying, look, lady, let go because in 37 days I've got to ascend to the father's right hand. I think his next appointment was at the father's right hand. And um, now because I believe that uh, human beings between death and resurrection still have conscious existence and that a human being goes, uh, their spirit goes directly to heaven, I believe is what Paul say in Philippians one twenty three, Second Corinthians 5.8. And because Jesus told the guy on the cross next to him, today you'll be in paradise with me, um, I, I think what better place for Jesus to hang out during the time his, his body was in the tomb, not rotting. I'm glad, glad you caught that one, brother. Um, but uh, while Jesus was, his body was in the tomb, I think what better place for Jesus to be than in, in the presence of his father? And he said he would be there today, and I take that literally. Yeah, but just to reiterate, I just, just to reiterate, the, the point is that when the Nicene Creed talks about Jesus ascending to heaven, uh, and I, the, my internet connection is kind of slow here, so I haven't been able to pull it up yet, but I'm pretty sure that the Creed is talking about his ascension following his resurrection, not what happened in between. Uh, actually, I was just able to pull up the text. It says... Um, it says, oh boy, actually, yeah, it says he suffered, and in the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. It's talking about him ascending to heaven after he rose, not what happened between death and resurrection. Thank you, gentlemen, for your presentations tonight. For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of application for us here in the audience, I would love to have each of you share pretending you're in a coffee shop sharing the gospel with someone who has never heard any of this history, never heard any of this information. I'd like to hear both of you respond to, so what if I don't believe in this Jesus of yours? What if I don't believe in what he's done? What's going to happen to me when I die? Yeah. 
Who would you rather answer first? I'll, I'll let you go. Okay. So um, what I would say is that uh, if somebody is, has rejected the free, the free gift that Jesus Christ offers, if, he, if somebody rejects the atoning substitutionary death of Christ, then he remains in his own sin, the sin of which he is already guilty, the sin for which he's already condemned. Um, he will die and he will rise to be judged. He will face the shame and the guilt of the sinful life that he has lived. He will be brought to tears. He'll be brought to his knees in shame for what he's done. He'll be sentenced to death, a violent, painful death. Uh, and then he'll miss out on an eternity of life. And I think that's terrifying. I remember before I was a believer, um, I used to imagine what it would be like to die. And because I wasn't a believer yet, what I, the only thing I could picture was blackness. Of, of not living anymore. And the thought terrified me. And so to my, and so to my friend who, who doesn't accept Christ, I say, you are missing out on an eternity of life uh, and, and you will be killed violently after you've been sentenced to death and forever you will be remembered in the way that we were meant to remember Hitler because of your sinful life. And I would plead and, and urge him to, uh, to turn to Christ so that he can live forever with God because um, I, I can think of no greater gift than an eternity in the presence of God. Yeah, uh, it's kind of really weird for me, but it's like if I had somebody say that to me, man, I would be like a happy camper because um, that's a difficult thing for us Christians. The world is so far away from us. How can we get people to actually discuss issues like that? So all I could go on is just my, my last encounter with a non-believer a few hours ago. Uh, the guy that worked, I was looking around to make sure he's not here. I don't want to embarrass the poor guy. Um, but he was working at the hotel that I was staying at, and um, and I kept asking for a stapler because I was still up to the last minute preparing for Chris Date. I was intimidated by his brilliance and how fast he talks and how articulate he is. Sorry. And, uh, and I kept asking for staplers. So I thought, you know what, this will be a good chance to try to share the gospel with the guy. And so I said, you know, uh, the reason why I'm doing this, I've got a debate at Christ Church right down the block. And um, and we're, we're debating about eternal conscious torment and stuff. And then he started talking about, well, everybody's got their own interpretation. You know, I was raised a Baptist and this and that. And I said, well, you know what? I've got a copy of this book that kind of explains what's going on at the debate. So I gave him, gave him a copy of our book. And he says, well, I love arguments. And uh, so, so he claimed he would read it and stuff. And, and I talked more and found out he was raised a Baptist but then I think he just reached the point where he just thought everybody disagreed. So I said, well, if you believe in some type of God, if you at least pray for me that I don't make a fool out of myself tonight. <laughs> and he said, and it was really sad. It kind of broke my heart a little bit. But he said, uh, well, I believe in luck, and, uh, and I wish you luck. And I said, okay, well, if you do feel like praying later, say a little prayer for me too. And he said, yeah, whatever, you know. And uh, But usually I don't get to that point. Well, what happens if I don't accept Jesus? But if I get to that point, um, I would say that you're going to be eternally, you'll be eternally separated from the one source of joy uh, that mankind has. And I think C.S. Lewis was, was right when he talked about hell. The, the doors are locked from the inside. That um, people don't get out of hell because they don't want to be in heaven praising God for, for all eternity. And, um, but, um, but certainly I don't start out 
witnessing to people. Although I, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. But I don't start out with, um, hey, you know, you're going to hell. Um, and uh, Americans, we have a really weird target audience. They don't like being preached at. So I, I like, I take a lot of Greg Kokel's advice. And Greg Kokel uh, thinks we ought to just ask them questions. Because nobody wants to be preached at, but everybody wants to preach and share their views. And so you just keep asking questions which show how futile their views are. And then eventually what happens is people start begging you. And I've had this happen numerous times. They beg me to share. They're like, you seem to know a lot about religion. Why don't you share your views with me? And I was like, no, I, I, don't, I don't want to, man, because you'll, you'll think I'm a bigot. No, I won't. This and that one. I said, no, nah, everybody, everybody thinks I'm a narrow-minded bigot. And I, no, you know your stuff, man. Talk to I said, okay, well, so I believe that God created us perfect, but then we all fell. And we're all sinners. We inherit a sin nature. And we're deserving of the eternal flames of hell. And, but because God loves us, he sent us. And then the, you can just see these guys. They're looking at me like, he's a bigot. You know, but they can't say it. They can't say it. They took that away. And, um, but, um, but I love those opportunities to get out and share the gospel. But I find that it seems like most of our time is, is, is being spent in pre-evangelism in, in our country because we're so far away from, uh, from uh, the truth. Before you wrap up, really quick, I just want to, for those of you who don't know, he mentioned a guy named Greg Kokel. He is an awesome apologist. He, he does a, he's a part of a ministry called Stand to Reason. Funny story, Greg Kokel uh, has written a book called Tactics for Sharing the Christian Faith, and he's got a number of tactics. The tactic that Dr. Phil just described, asking questions, is called the Columbo tactic. Uh, for those of you who've seen the Columbo TV show, uh, you know, he asks a lot of questions. Now, the funny story is, Greg Kokel came to a debate or, or a presentation or something that Dr. Fernandez gave once. And Dr. Fernandez told me, you told me the story. Yeah. He heard Greg Kokel laughing out in the audience and he went up to him afterwards and asked him why he was laughing. It turned out because Greg Kokel thought that Dr. Fernandez was imitating uh, uh, Columbo's voice. <laughs> but when in reality, that's, well, that's just his voice. Well, see, Colum it was a conference that he also was speaking at. So he went up and he did his Columbo impersonation with a fake cigar and... And, uh, and then he sat down. It was right in Bellevue. And so I got up, I started talking, and there was laughing going on from that corner of the room. And I was like, um, you know, I got a heckler. And I just kept talking, and the guy kept laughing. There's like 600 people, and only one guy's laughing. And so then I, I glanced over, and I just it didn't register, and I glanced back, and then all of a sudden it dawned on me, that's Greg Kokel. What do, you, what do you do when Greg, the Greg Kokel, the big apologist from Southern California, what do you do when he's laughing at you? You know, it's like... And then I look back, and eventually he, he was leaning over the chair. He's, he's like this, smiling and, and laughing at the guy behind him because he's thinking, wow, he does a better Columbo than I do. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, little by little, he started to realize this guy really talks like this. <laughs> and he felt so guilty that he had, he had, no, he had no choice but to uh, you know, kind of fall in love with me because he felt so bad that he was doing that and stuff. So... Uh, and, um, and then he, I even caught him impersonating me, and he didn't know I was in the crowd in North Carolina and stuff, so, so that, was, uh, that was pretty neat, too. So, Well, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dr. Phil. And, yeah. and thank you guys for coming out tonight. We sure uh, enjoyed being able to think uh, well about what we believe and why we believe it. 
If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.